Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed. Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it. Hello, simpletons. Welcome to the Minimalist Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. And I'm Ryan Nicodemus. And together, we're the Minimalists. Of course, we're here with Malabama. Hi, everybody. TK Coleman is in the studio. What it is. Uh, we got the rest of our team. Jordan No More, Professor Sean, Danny Unknown. Of course, joining us on the live stream, we have Emma the Immigrant, Podcast Sean, Social Jess. Welcome aboard to all of you. And oh, I should say, we're streaming the first few minutes of this podcast. Obviously, we do the Patreon live stream every Tuesday, 10 a.m., where we have two to three hours of in-depth conversation and questions. We're also doing a little bit of this on TikTok Live today. Ryan had this brilliant idea. He said, hey, Josh, you know what all the cool kids are doing? I was like, what? He was like, X. (laughs) I don't know what that is, but uh, he's like, also, TikTok. (laughs) I said, I'm down. Let's do it. <clears throat> yeah, man. I uh, I just want to be. I just want things to be lit, fam. <laughs> <laughs> Not me. I'm trying to live the unlit life. I'm just trying to get things Gucci around here. <laughs> <laughs> I like that unlit life. That's a good book title. The uh, unlit uh, life. Oh, come on, man. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, later in the episode, we're going to talk about <laughs> spiritual bootlicking or bootlicking as a spiritual practice. That's right. Oh, I can't wait to talk That's about a real that. Thing. We got so much to talk about. We were supposed to have Hale Dwodskin here today. Uh, this book called The Sedona Method, which we're going to dive into a little bit later. It is such a fascinating read. I, um, it's really a book about letting go or, or mm. the way he talks about it is releasing. And it's really an internal journey of letting go, not the external letting go. And I think we'll find the, the mix of both on today's episode. We're going to talk about news media clutter. So if you have questions, drop those in the Patreon chat. We'll get to those during the live stream as well. Or if you have questions about anything else that we're going to be talking about today, letting go, releasing. Uh, What else do we have questions about? Worrying. We had a question about psychological flexibility, anything like that. Drop your questions, your comments in the chat. We'll get to those as soon as we can. Shout out to our TikTok viewership as well. Let's dive into this episode. Before we do, big thank you to our Patreon supporters. Oh, yeah. Your support keeps our podcast and YouTube channel and TikTok channel 100% advertisement free because advertisements suck. Yeah, they do. Man, let's start with our callers. If you have a question or comment for our podcast, give us a call, 406-219-7839, or email a voice memo to podcast at theminimalists.com. If you are a Patreon supporter, let us know in that voice memo so we can prioritize your question. Our first question today is from Joe. Hi, I'm Joe, a Patreon subscriber in the UK. Um, When talking about phones and addictive apps, I find the news more of a problem. I'm in the UK, and as soon as I read about the threat of nuclear war or of our energy supplies being cut off, my anxiety goes through the roof and stays right up there for days. But I also seek this news. It's like I obsessively check the news for these stories. I was the same with COVID and any such disaster or threat. 
I'm not sure whether I'm trying to get as much information as possible to protect myself somehow, yet it's really doing the opposite. Part of me knows that the only news worth knowing is that which affects my immediate community and family. Sure, some of these things would certainly threaten that, but maybe I would be better off not knowing. I don't understand why I can't stop looking. I block news sites on a regular basis and always end up unblocking them. It's literally like a drug. TK, you know what's fascinating about this? I've realized this over the last few years. Ever since we had you on the podcast, we did a political clutter episode years ago. We brought in... Well, it was about the it was about the twenty twenty election specifically. Mm. We had the Kim, bootlicker special. <laughs> <laughs> we had uh, Kim Iverson was here, Jamie Kilstein, you, me, and and Ryan, and we all had this conversation about the political landscape, and a lot of it was about sort of news media clutter. And what I realized in preparation for that episode, and I've carried it with me ever since, is that the news is not really designed to inform. It is designed to get your attention, Mm. to attract your attention. Mm. And I want to say that information is not inherently good or bad. It's certainly not virtuous. And I think that's the problem that Joe's running into here is, well, I'm just checking in with the media. It's the story I tell myself so I can be more informed. Mm -hmm. And that will then equal I'm a more virtuous, more noble version of myself. But I think that's not inherently true because what Joe is figuring out here is this is increasing my anxiety. It's increasing my stress. It's increasing my discontent. And guess what? Of course it is because that's what it's designed to do. It's, it's designed to make you feel a way so that you continue to tune in to whatever channel is making you feel those feelings. It's a hell of a drug. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they know it too. Yeah. I mean, she said it's, it's just as addicting mm-hmm. as a drug, right? And, and, and that's, that's, um, that, that's not by accident, right? Like, like that's engineered. It, it, it's not as if this information is just being put out there neutrally like, hey, we just collected a random you know, set of stories and we're going to put the stories out there and you decide what's important to take a look at. Like, no, like... They are picking their headlines. They are picking the stories based on what's most likely to get the engagement. By the way, you know, I just saw somebody online the other day kind of complaining about all the negativity on on uh, social media. And I was like, yeah, but you're tweeting about the negativity on social media, <laughs> right? And, and, and I'm not saying that you're wrong for doing that, but that's engagement. And whether you engage out of love or hate, mm-hmm. frustration or joy, it's still engagement. You're still incentivizing the system to give you more of that. So if someone says, hey, like, here's a great Dean Martin quote. And another person says, Dean Martin is a total idiot. Mm-hmm. We don't care about the one that says, here's a great Dean Martin quote. We, mm-hmm. we don't care about that. We want the one that says Dean Martin's an idiot so we can fight over it. Right. Mm-hmm. And so everything that we engage, we get more of. And they're studying us, man. Like, Ah, oh, you get a reaction out of that stuff, right? People always say, "I want more positive news." Why you got to share me that? Share with me the negative stuff. It's because you don't you don't engage that. Mm-hmm. You fall asleep when they give you that. Yeah, yeah you actually don't want the positive news. I mean, yeah. that, because yeah, it doesn't elicit the reaction that they're looking for. I mean, it's it's infotainment, and that's <clears throat> it's just, it's information disguised as entertainment. I'm sorry, it's entertainment disguised as information. And it, yes, it, it's it's supposed to be informing us right and yet we're pretending 
as though we're getting something out of it. But what we're really getting out of it is the stress, the anxiety, the things it's designed to do, which is bring our attention away from whatever is important to us Mm -hmm. to the things that is important to them. Yeah. I mean, we think that we're going and doing a good thing and we're uh, looking out for the world and, you know, we're staying up on current events, but it's really, it's pacification. It, it, It isn't actual research. And I'm not trying to discredit certain things that, you know, maybe somebody does want to look up and look at a bill that's going to get passed or um, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, there's, there's some exceptions out there. But if you go to, you know, CNN.com, FoxNews.com, Breitbart, whatever it is, their goal is not to um, uh, uh, give you information. Their goal is to really sell you advertisements. And they do that through this information that either gets you really upset I mean, if, if you're looking at headlines, uh, what's is it the Drudge Report, which kind of aggregates everything? Yeah. I mean, the headlines are just, it's clickbait. Mm-hmm. I mean, clickbait, uh, before the internet, it was it was news headlines. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it's very easy for us to react. And we get uh, motivated to react when we are angry, when we're sad, when we're upset. But yeah, if we went to the news site and it was just like, oh, everything was nice today and uh, this, you know, so-and-so helped so-and-so across the street and got them some groceries. Like we would get, off, we would get off that pretty quick. And we also wouldn't be tweeting about that. <laughs> yeah. We, I would look at it and say, boring, yeah. move, move me to right. the thing that gets my blood pressure up. Right. Yeah. And it's the reason that we seek out scary movies or we seek out action thrillers is mm-hmm. because we are seeking out entertainment. But there in those instances, we know that we're seeking out entertainment. We get really confused Mm -hmm. by the news media clutter because it purports to be one thing. Mm. Oh, it's virtuous information, right? Okay, it's information, but information doesn't presuppose virtue. And when Mm. we conflate the two, Mm. oh, I'm being a good citizen, I'm being a good person by Mm -hmm. staying informed, Mm. information is worth next to nothing. Mm. We were uh, meeting mm. last week, and uh, I hate ideas. <laughs> <laughs> ideas are the worst thing. <laughs> and here's why I say that. People always come to me with ideas. <laughs> oh, right. And sure. they're never willing to actually execute on those mm. ideas, to actualize those ideas. It's just like, hey, here's some work for you to do, Josh. Mm-hmm. I have an idea. <laughs> Here you go. And it's like, oh, your idea is actually work- worth less than nothing because it's <laughs> taking up my time. Now, what do I? why is this coming up in this conversation about news media clutter? Mm-hmm. Well, because news media is the same thing. It's worth less than nothing in most instances, because I can give you more information. Your problem is not access to information. You have more access to information than anyone in history. You have more access to information than any king from several hundred years ago, any pharaoh. You have way more information. And yet, I was talking to Professor Sean about this earlier today. We're more miserable than ever. What do I mean by that? We're suffering more we're suffering from things that we don't need to suffer from. Right. Like this sort of nuclear mm. war. It's like if, if someone launches, launches a nuke, um, I mean, w- what does the information that it's coming, what does that do for you? Right. I mean, or, or like, you know, uh, the gas shortages. I, I think about the pandemic and how, uh, yeah, I read about the toilet paper shortage. So, I mean, luckily, like I, you know, I had a, 
sink and some washcloths in my bathroom. It's so funny. We freaked out over toilet paper. So I didn't like go out and hoard toilet paper. But all those people who went out and hoarded toilet paper, it's like, what did that really get them? Right. Yeah. And and I, well, I saw, um, I've seen uh, like pictures of people trying to return their hoarded toilet paper, Mm -hmm. like shortly after the pandemic. And yeah. And it's funny because customer service is like, no, like that's your hoard now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, I, I don't know how, I don't know um, how it helps us to have a heads up on things like nuclear war or a, or a, a fuel shortage or whatever it may be. If anything, it just kind of causes panic. Well, and, and sometimes it's good to focus on things that make you feel bad, but that's given the presupposition that you can actually do something about it. Mm. But we're focusing on things that both make us feel bad and that we can't do anything about, Mm -hmm. right? Not only that, even if you can't do anything about it and you just want to be informed, that doesn't mean there's no boundary around how much information is enough. Like, how how well do you need to be informed? Two hours of listening about the possibilities of nuclear war? Five hours? Mm. You know, um, I want to read something from Terrence McKenna who has a a very beautiful YouTube clip called Create Your Own Roadshow, where I think he kind of gives um, directions for a way out. He says this, we have to create culture. Don't watch TV. Don't read magazines. Don't even listen to NPR. Create your own roadshow. The nexus of space and time where you are now is the most immediate sector of your universe. And if you're worrying about Michael Jackson or Bill Clinton or somebody else, then you are disempowered. You're giving it all away to icons, icons which are maintained by an electronic media so that you want to dress like X or have lips like Y. This is shit-brained, this kind of thinking that is all a cultural diversion. And what is real is you and your friends and your associations, your highs, your orgasms, your hopes, your plans, your fears. And we are told, no, we're unimportant, we're peripheral. Get a degree, get a job, get a this, get a that, and then you're a player. You don't want to even play that game. You want to reclaim your mind and get it out of the hands of the cultural engineers who want to turn you into a half-baked moron consuming all this trash that's being manufactured out of the bones of a dying world. The reason we're so addicted to scrolling, to gossip, to news stories, to things that are dragging us down is because if we're honest with ourselves, we're compensating for the total absence of thrills and adventure Mm. and positive drama in our own lives. We need some drama. We need challenges. We need difficulties to overcome. We need a mission. We need a purpose. We need something that gets us out of bed and makes us feel alive. And when we don't have that, we go seeking it in the entertainment industry. We go seeking it online and arguments and so on. And so it's not good enough to say, I'm just going to stop watching this stuff. I'm going to stop consuming this stuff. You've got to ask, what am I going to start doing instead in order to get that adventure in a way that's healthy? Mm. The news media is quite often disempowering because it makes us feel like everything else that's going on out there is important, to TK's point. If everything else out there is important, what am I saying? That what's going on in my own life is not important. What's going on in my house is not important. Mm. And so what we do is we abdicate our own responsibility to look at our lives, examine what's going on in our minds, in our hearts, in our households. And if we can fix that, not through some sort of mechanical process, but by better understanding 
the problem in our own lives, then maybe we can help our neighbor. Maybe we can help our neighborhood. Maybe we can help our community. But there's not a whole lot I can do for someone who's 18,000 miles on the other side of the world. I can worry about them. I can have fear. I can punish myself for the troubles that are going on over there. All the while, I'm forgetting about the problems that are going on in my own backyard. Joe, I'd love to send you a copy of our book, Essential. Ryan and I wrote this book uh, years ago. Uh, 2015 is when it came out. 150 essays about intentional living. There's 12 different chapters, 12 different areas of intentional living. And one of those areas has to do with our technology. There's an entire chapter in there about our relationship with technology and how often we use it to distract ourselves. But we can do the opposite. Technology can be a tool. Ryan, TK, and I, we're not Luddites. Mm. We're not saying get rid of your technology, get rid of the news. But if you better understand how to use it when it is useful to you, then you'll stop using it in a way that you're battering yourself with your own technology. If you like our podcast, I think you'll enjoy the audiobook version of Essential. Or if you want the book book or the ebook version, we'll be happy to send those to you as well, Joe. Our next question is from Bridget. My name is Bridget and I'm from Camden, Maine. Um, I'm curious about decluttering your ex, who is also the mother or father of your child. And there are just some things that you want to hold on to, but they also make you really emotional. Um, There are just some things that I want to keep from when my daughter was a baby. And I do look at them really fondly and quite regularly. But I'm not sure what to do with things like our wedding album, which she really loves to see. And stuff like their baby shower photos and some of the thank you cards that I'd put in another album for her. Um, He is a part of our life, but he and I don't get along anymore. And that makes it really hard. I do get emotional when I see those things, but I understand that they really matter to her. And to be honest, they matter to me too. Um, Do you have any advice? So Mm -hmm. letting go is not a one-time event. We are always letting go. And I think that's an important thing to understand because the reason we're always letting go is because we're always picking up things. Now, it could be physical things like the wedding album, but you could let go of that wedding album today and not let go of it mentally. So it's possible for the opposite to also happen where it no longer has a tug over you. You can let go of it mentally where it's no longer taking up space in your psyche. And later in the episode, during the added value segment, I want to talk about the Sedona method, because Hale Doldskin was supposed to be here today, but he had to, to cancel. He wasn't able to make it out to Los Angeles. And it's really a method for letting go internally, right? Mm. Ryan and TK and I, we often talk about letting go of the physical things externally so we can start dealing with that internal clutter. And really, that's what Bridget is talking about here. She has some internal clutter. It's not that the wedding album is a problem. Having a wedding, if it was just that one thing, I'd say, you know what, keep it. Mm. Except it is creating clutter in your life. You have X clutter, clutter from your ex. The residue Mm. of Mm. this past relationship is haunting your current life. Mm. And I've experienced this in my own life for sure. And I know my wife has. You know, I have my daughter, Ella, is my stepdaughter. And so Bex, my wife, has a previous marriage to which she's still tethered because of this other human being, this beautiful human being that they created. While you can really appreciate that young human being, that child, 
you also recognize that, well, now I'm forever tied to this other person. Mm. Good, bad, or indifferent, that is exactly how it is. So the question ultimately comes back to, how can I come to accept the fact that I'm going to be with this person, Mm -hmm. even though we're not together still, I still have a tie to this person. Mm. And how can I accept that so that I can move forward? TK, we, we often talk about acceptance a lot on, on the podcast. And I'm wondering if you have any, before I get into the Sedona method, I wonder if you have any, any insights. Yeah, I I think uh, one of the most important things to let go in life is the idea that you need to hold on to your pain for the purpose of satiating other people's curiosity. Sometimes we need to move on in order to grow, in order to get the healing that we need. And sometimes other people will want to hold us back because they're curious about that part of our lives that we need to move on from. Hey, tell me about that thing that happened to you. Tell me about why you and that guy or you and that girl broke up. Tell me more. And there comes a point where you might just need to stop talking about it. Mm. You might need to focus on something else. And other people's curiosity, they can it can hold you hostage, even though they're well-meaning and they're sincere. And there just has to come a point in your life where you establish those boundaries and say, hey, look, I'm not obligated to hold on to my pain just so other people can remember it more conveniently. Right. And so when it comes to things like photos that you have with you and your ex, I'm not even talking about the ones with your your child in them. I don't think you're obligated to hold on to those photos if they bring you down just because your child might enjoy looking at them in the same way that you had to get over your heartbreaks. That's something that they'll have to get over. That's something that your child will have to let go of. The other thing I would say is letting go for you doesn't have to mean letting go for someone else. And if there is something like pictures of your child or whatever that she might value looking at at some point in the future, let your ex hold on to it. Mm. Maybe he won't mind holding on to it. And that way you don't have to look at it. But as she gets a little older, she can look at it and then she can decide what she wants to do with it. But when it comes to the stuff in your life, in your house, give yourself permission to let it go if it brings you healing. Because the best gift that you can give her or anyone in your life, it's not a photo album. You know, it's it's, it's a heart that's free. It's mm. a heart that's available to love. Mm. That's beautiful. Ryan, can yeah. I ask you a question? Uh, oh, go ahead. Oh, sure. You can ask me a question. Yeah. Well, the only thing I was going to add is, you know, I don't know if this is the case for Bridget or not, but it sounds like there might be some feelings, emotions, memories, uh, trauma, maybe, that like she might want to, um, you know, focus on working through. So... That could be uh, working through. It could be going and, you know, uh, seeking out a therapist or, or whatever. But for her to be triggered like that um, every single time, what I what I wouldn't do myself is I wouldn't just ignore that. Mm. I wouldn't just be like, OK, well, this this certain thing triggers a certain negative emotion. So I'm going to get rid of that and I'm just going to put it out of sight, out of mind, um, because if it's if it's the emotion and not the actual item, then you're going to have those emotions come up some other way or uh, w- with with a different item. So uh, again, I don't know if this is uh, Bridget's um, uh, uh, problem or not, but it's uh, that's what I would consider personally. W- what's the question, man? When I was thinking about her question, I was thinking mm-hmm. about you and your packing party when yeah. you were letting go of all your stuff. It's mm-hmm. a great example of letting go because there were many things in there that brought you joy at one point point in time, Mm -hmm. or they still added some sort of small amount of value to your life. Mm. But it wasn't enough value 
for you to hold on to it because there was enough pain in holding on to it. Mm -hmm. And that's what I see in Bridget's question is I'm holding on to this thing because my daughter really enjoys getting value from it. But that presupposes that value is finite and she can Mm. only get value from this thing. But the truth is you can let that go. And it seems to me that you'll find more value on the other side of letting go. Yeah. And I think it comes down to what are you letting go of and why are you letting go of it? I mean, if you're letting go of things just to be a minimalist, then you're probably not going to find the value uh, that you're talking about there, Josh. But yes, certainly when you let go of your hoard, when you um, let go of things that are like legitimately stressing you out, weighing on your mind, then yeah, there is a value in like letting go of those, uh, those objects that create those negative emotions. I do want to talk about the Sedona method real quick. This book is fascinating. I'm really enjoying it. I'm not finished with it yet, but I can tell you that I'm already putting to practice the concepts in here. There are no musts. There are no shoulds. There are no prescriptions in it, but it's a better way of understanding how to release something. Another way to say it is how to let go of something. Mm. And really there's this four-step process that allows us to release. And it it's almost the first step. So I'll just walk through the whole the whole thing real quick because it's it's real simple. And you can do this right now. If you're listening to this, or we can do it here in the room, there are basically four steps to help you let go emotionally, internally. The first step is, what is that one thing right now that you're struggling with, that's bringing you pain, that's causing you grief? Think of one thing. A physical item? or a... It could be a physical okay. item. Okay. Think of one thing, though, that is causing you grief. It could be a relationship. It could be a health issue. It could be a material possession. It could Mm -hmm. be a career. Think of one thing that is causing you grief. And just for a moment, welcome it in. Allow it. Hold on to that for a moment. It's not about letting it go right now. Welcome that grief, that despair. Mm -hmm. Welcome it in Mm -hmm. and just allow it. You don't have to cling to it, but allow it in. The second question here is, can I let it go? Meaning, is it possible that I could let this go at some point in time? Mm. The third question is, when? I'm sorry, the third question is, will you let this go? Mm. Meaning, would you be willing to let it go? And the fourth question is, when? And that's an invitation to let go right now. You don't have to wait for the future to let it go. You can let it go right now. Let's walk through those one more time. What's one thing that's bringing you grief, distress, stress, anxiety? Could be a physical item, could be a relationship, could be a career. Welcome that in. Allow it. Just hold on to it for a second. You don't have to cling. Bring it in. Could you let that go? Would you let that go? win. And if you do that over and over as a practice, you'll start to feel this ease, this tension that releases. It's like I feel in my body even. Letting it go is a process of holding on to it, welcoming in that thing that is causing that stress, that's causing that discontent. Asking myself, can I let this go? Am I able to actually let it mm. go? Is it something I can let go of? Mm. And if so, would you be willing to let it go? 
And if you would be willing to let it go, when? And that's just an invitation to let go right now. Bridget, I hope that helps you out. Check out the Sedona method if you'd like to, uh, to learn more. You, you know, something that that exercise really highlights very well is how hard it is to let go of something when you're holding it against yourself mm. for even being in a position where you need to let it go. Sometimes we jump to the let it go phase too quickly because we feel like it's bad that I even have it or it's bad that I want to keep it. But when you say, let's embrace it for a while, you're acknowledging the fact that it serves some positive purpose in your life, even if it does so in an unhealthy way or a less than optimal way. It's doing something good for you. And just taking that moment to be with it is so important because then it allows you to let it go from a space of awareness that says, all right, I got what I need from it and I'm able to move on because I'm confident that I can take what I needed without all of the excess or I'm confident that I can create those aspects that I need through healthier alternatives. I love that exercise, man. The book is, um, it's really powerful. I think you'll enjoy it. Our next question is from Jess. My name's Jess and I'm calling from Orlando. I am calling to get your thoughts on worry. I recently brought my son home from a week-long stay at the hospital and he was really ill. We don't know truly what's going on and we probably won't know for a number of weeks. I am recognizing that there is this sense of worry of the unknown, of what could be. And I remember you guys talking about worry being such a wasted emotion and it really is just a promise of something going bad in the future. How do I stop worrying about what could be happening with my son? How do I try my best to stay present? I find myself feeling more and more irritable and agitated. And I know that all comes back to just feeling worried. Yeah, so I don't mm. think worry is a bad thing. I want to be no. clear about that. It makes sense for us to worry sometimes. The The problem is when we cling to that worry, it brings mm. up that emotion in us. Mm. And it's okay to feel those feelings. In fact, that's why I think joy is so powerful because joy makes room for the discontent. It makes room for the anxiety. It makes room for the worry. But when we cling to it, then... To worry is to punish yourself today for something that has not happened yet. Mm. And so this thing could happen in the future. And Ryan, I love what you said a couple of weeks ago on the podcast. You were talking about, well, I think it was last week, actually. When we worry about something, we're worrying in the moment. So we're punishing ourselves now. Mm -hmm. We often worry about something that we did in the past and what implication that has for our future. Mm -hmm. And then we're also worried about something that hasn't even happened yet. Mm -hmm. And then, so it's like a triple worrying, yeah. a triple threat of worry. And that's how we walk through our days. It's constant worry about this and this, these things that haven't actually happened. And so, yes, it is true that something might happen to your son. Something might happen to my daughter. Something might happen to my wife. Something might happen to Ryan. And those things can put me into a worry spiral. Mm -hmm. I remember when Ryan got into a really bad car accident, I was so worried about like, oh, what does this mean for him? What does this mean for me? And if I'm being honest, it was a rather, it was rather self-involved. I, I mean, yes, I was worried about him, but I was also worried about what it meant for me. 
Hmm. That is, uh, it, and I think ultimately, whenever we're worrying, even though it feels virtuous mm-hmm. in the moment, we're really worried about what does this mean for me? How will this inconvenience me? How will this make me feel bad in the mm-hmm. future? And that worry might mean, hey, I need to take a different direction. Mm-hmm. If we're driving down the highway at 120 miles an hour and I'm worried that we're going to crash, I might just ask Ryan to slow down. Mm-hmm. That worry is justified. Sure. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's really where worry might be beneficial. I don't know, or maybe justified is the right word to use there, but when you can act on that anxiety or that worry that you have and it's going to change um, an immediate outcome or, or an outcome in the future, I mean, then then yes, like use that worry or that anxiety it's a symptom. Use that symptom to act. But if you're just ruminating in anxiety, then it's, yeah, it's never, um, I don't think that, I, I think it is a wasted emotion at that point. But I don't think worry in general is a wasted emotion. It's just, it's a symptom. And we have to uh, dig in a little bit deeper. But I, I know, Josh, you've before talked about, um, hey, don't think of a pink elephant. You know, it's like, as soon as someone says that, like, you're probably going to think of a pink elephant. Yes. And if I'm sitting there and telling myself, okay, I need to stop worrying. Don't worry. Mm-hmm. Or worse, Josh is looking at me yeah. and being like, come on, man. You see I'm stressing out. Or you, you see that I'm stressing out and you're like, come on, man. Just let it go. Don't worry about it. Like that's not going to be helpful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So, you know, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't know what the right question to ask is, but the question of how do I stop worrying is um, maybe the better question is how do I live more in the moment? Yeah. And I think that's where we go back to the Sedona Mm. method that we just covered there Mm -hmm. is, okay, what is the thing that is bringing me grief, that is bringing me worry? Mm -hmm. Let's hold on to that for a second. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to cling to Tyler. Let's hold on to it. Let's allow it into our life. Yeah. Okay. Can I let this go? Meaning, is there a possibility that I can let go of the worry? Of course, because you know that you've you don't worry 24 hours a day. So mm-hmm. there are moments where you let it go for sure. Mm-hmm. You keep picking it back up and that's okay. Would you be willing to let it go? Mm. Oh yeah, definitely. When? Oh yeah, I'll yeah. let it go right now. Mm. Yeah. I, I think the question, as Ryan said, the question is not how do I stop worrying? It's how do I start putting this emotional energy that I'm giving the label worry to, how do I put that to constructive and creative use? Because one of the things when it, when it comes to like the visceral experience of emotion, there's usually more there than the words we use to describe it. So I can say, hey, I'm jealous. I feel jealous right now. Well, that's me forming an intellectual concept about what I feel, using a word to describe it so that someone else can understand it. But the visceral experience is far more ambiguous and multidimensional than that. If, if you really probe deeply, you might find that what I'm calling jealousy involves a mixture of a few things, some anger there, some fear there, a little bit of sadness there. And so what you have is you have a lot of energy and that energy is creative power. And if we recognize that it's bigger and broader than the labels we give to it, we can then ask, well, how can I put this to creative use? How can I put, put it to constructive use? And sometimes what stops us from doing that is we feel like when bad things are happening, the responsible thing to do is to worry about it. That's responsible, right? Because what do I look like allowing myself to have a good time when there are things to worry about? I look like a person who doesn't care. But when you realize there's more to the emotion than the label that you give to it and you ask yourself, how can I put it to creative and constructive use? You can then, then say, how can I 
do something with this for my family. Maybe some create some experiences for my child, for all of us together to enjoy something unconventional together, to work on a project together. That way you're not suppressing the emotion. You're not trying to get over the emotion. You're not trying to alter it, but you're recognizing it for what it is, something bigger than your label. And you're asking, how can I express it as much as possible for the health of my family? And then you just focus on what you can control. Mm. Man, I love what you said. Uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but you said uh, um, people see it as virtuous to like worry. Like that, yeah, it doesn't make you a good person because you worry about things that are going on. I worry better than you worry. Right, exactly. Oh, you just don't care. I care. Yeah. Why don't you worry more? Aren't you worried? Yeah. Aren't you and, and yeah, aren't you worried? Aren't you concerned about that? Like people will wow. use these flowery words. And yeah. Ryan, I love what you said earlier about the, the pink elephant mm. because there's this concept called Wu Wei. It's a, a, a Taoist concept. Are you familiar with it at all? Mm-mm. So Wu Wei, Wu means it's no or negation. Wei is like, uh, it means like building or creating, making. Uh, but the best translation I've heard is from Alan Watts when he talked about, it's about forcing. So Wu Wei is the art of not forcing things. Mm. Or one might even call it the art of effortless living. Mm. And so Good luck trying to say, don't worry, stop worrying, mm-hmm. right? As, as a, the opposite of that is not to worry, or the opposite of worrying is not to stop worrying. Mm-hmm. It's to see the worry for what it is. Is it productive? Is it leading you somewhere? Well, it's certainly leading you somewhere, but almost always it's leading you to this place of distress that is not aiding you in, it's not enriching your life, it's not enhancing your life. If anything, mm-hmm. it's what? It's clutter because why? It is in the way. So worrying most of the time is emotional clutter. Mm. And that emotional clutter is stifling. It prevents us from living effortlessly. And the only way around it is not to stop worrying, it's to stop clinging to the worry. Just witness the worry. Oh yeah, that's there. Why is that there? I'm going to hold it for a moment. Mm. I'm going to ask myself, can I let this go? Well, of course I can, Mm. because I've let it go before. Would you let this go? Yeah. How about now? Let's move on to some social media questions. Wishing you the best, Jess. Yeah. We got a question here from Twitter. Idira asks, we know trying to acquire more gets in the way of minimalism, but how do you ensure you don't let go of too much and end up living in mediocrity? Mm. This is another one of those concepts TK was talking about earlier. Mediocrity is a bad thing and therefore greatness is a good thing. Well, I know a lot of people who have achieved greatness by societal standards and they are miserable. And so do you want success and misery? Because to me, that's a recipe for failure. If you say, well, Josh, I'll give you a billion dollars, but you'll be unhappy for the rest of your life. No, thanks. I'm Mm. good on that. But Mm. no, if I get a billion dollars, I'll be happy. Well, why? Well, because I'll give myself permission to be happy. Mm -hmm. Well, let's skip the billion dollar thing and let me just give myself permission to be happy right now because mediocrity results from an accumulation of compromises. And mm. So compromises aren't good or bad either. Right. I will co- make compromises for people that I love. I don't, however, want to compromise my values, the things that are foundational for my life. Mm-hmm. But over time, we'll make this little tiny compromise here, compromise there, compromise here. And before we know it, we have an entire 
pathway of compromises. And so, yes, the mediocre life is one in which I've compromised. Now, how am I compromising with respect to this Twitter question? Well, maybe it's that I'm holding on to things that aren't adding value to my life. And, uh, and I'm compromising my own values of mm -hmm. what's getting in the way, what is important to me. I'm telling myself a story like, oh yeah, that thing is relatively important to me. Going back to a previous question, yes, that wedding album is important to me. And maybe it does add a little bit of value to your life. But if it's getting in your way, just because something adds value to your life is not the sole reason to hold on to it. Mm. It's an okay reason to hold on to something. But if something is simultaneously adding value to my life, but it's getting in the way of something that is more important than that, then that's a compromise. And that is creating a mediocre life for me. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting because I don't, I don't see how the stuff that you hold on to or let go of like the physical possessions, I don't see how that would even make you live or not live a mediocre life. Cause you can look at the Buddha. Was he mediocre? You know, was, um, was right. Gandhi mediocre? Right. It's like, they didn't have a lot of stuff, but then you could also look at, um, I don't know, Charlie Jean, uh -huh. who's loaded, has everything, uh -huh. all the women, all the drugs, everything. Hedonist life. Yeah. But like, I, would posit that for me, like that would be immediate. I would be compromising a lot. Right. And um, yeah, I, yeah, I, I just fail to see the connection between mediocrity and the, the number of possessions that we own. I think that this hmm. is a societal standard. Like, hmm. Hey, if you're not living like Dan Blazarian mm -hmm. or uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, you know, where, where you have, you know, infinite riches, essentially, mm -hmm. then you must be living a mediocre life. You could do better. That's the biggest lie that we tell each other. Uh, and we don't tell it directly, although sometimes we do. Oh, yeah, you could do better than that. Do better. Right. Uh, but it's already propagated. Every advertisement you see is what? This will make your life better. Mm. Better is a lie. You don't need to be better. Mm -hmm. You are who you are already. Mm -hmm. And improving your life is another lie. The only way that we improve our lives is if we're in some sort of crater, if you're in debt or you have some sort of health problem and what you're trying to do is get out of that crater. But once you're on flat land, there's no getting better. Yes, you can adorn yourself with more accoutrements, but that's not going to make you a better person. Mm -hmm. It might make you better equipped for a particular scenario. Yes, a race car will get you there slightly faster, but that presupposes that's better than maybe moving a little bit more slowly. Mm. Yeah. I, I, I want to question the premise of this question. We know trying to acquire more gets in the way of minimalism. Hmm. No, we don't know that. Yeah. We definitely don't know that. That's a great point. Uh, because acquiring more does not get in the way of minimalism. It's acquiring more than what is a reflection of your principles and your priorities, mm -hmm. right? When you acquire more than that. But there are some people who need to acquire more. There are some people who need to get rid of things. But we can't know who those people are just by looking at a cookie cutter definition of minimalism. We got to ask, hey, what makes you come alive? What's mm -hmm. holding you back? And what is it holding you back from? So don't assume that mere addition conflicts with minimalism. The other thing I would say is mediocrity is about self-compromise. 
I know I'm opening myself up to some jokes here, but I got to quote one of the best songs of all time by one of the greats, Whitney Houston, greatest love of all. She said, I decided long ago never to walk in anyone's shadow. If I fail, if I succeed, at least I lived as I believe. No matter what they take from me, they can't take away my dignity. That, you live life according to that formula, you cannot be mediocre. Now, somebody might say, oh man, but you know what? You quoted Whitney Houston and here's the problem that I have with her. And that gets me to the point. You will always be a loser in someone else's eyes. Are you a loser in your own? You will always be boring to someone else. Mm. Are you bored to yourself? Mm. Other people will always look at you and say, you're uninteresting to me. Are you uninteresting to yourself? Other people will say you're too serious and you're too goofy. Are you too serious and too goofy for you? There will always be people who disagree with who you are and disagree with the way you live. Not just Whitney, but you and me. But do you disagree with you? If you do, then you're mediocre. But if you're in agreement with yourself, it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. And it doesn't matter how many things you own. Mm, TikTok that, Danny, yeah. I know. Mm. You know, it's interesting. Like, I care, or I should say, maybe not care is the word, but... I do look at my life through other people's eyes in the sense of like, oh, like, what if I saw that raw for, you know, like, I, I do think about this stuff, but that is so far down on the list of whose eyes I'm looking through when it comes yeah. to the decisions I make in my life. I think maybe the better way to frame that for me is what, what standard am I setting for other people, not as, oh, I'm Joshua Fields Milburn or I'm Ryan Nicodemus uh, from The Minimalists, like, right? Like when you say setting a standard for other people, are you talking about setting other people's standards or the standard that you're setting that other people are looking at? You are setting a standard regardless, right? Just part of it is because oh, sure. you are okay. Ryan Nicodemus. Yeah, like there's a standard of Ryan Nicodemus. I see what yes. you're saying. And yes. there are a lot of people who look up to you. Sure. And just because someone looks up to you doesn't mean that you need to set a standard for them. You are, you are, whether you like it or not, it's mm -hmm. that old Charles Barkley commercial. Remember, he's like, I'm not a role model. Well, yeah, you are a role model. Mm -hmm. And just whether you like it or not, you yeah. don't want to pick right. up that. I get it. Right. You're not trying to be a role model, but those are the best role models. The person who wants to be the role model is not really a role model or influencer. Right. Yeah, no, that's, you're absolutely right. That's the opposite of Wu Wei, mm -hmm. right? Uh, there's this great Dallas quote about this where it's like the the person who tries to be virtuous is not virtuous. Mm -hmm. The real virtuous person does not try to be virtuous. Mm -hmm. And I think the same thing is true here. It's not about trying to be virtuous, but also understanding that you are setting some sort of standard. And so if yeah. you are you know, doing lines of Coke on the podcast mm -hmm. and womanizing mm -hmm. and being that type of person, well, then you're setting a different standard then it's incongruent with the person that you want to be. I really wish we could get 25-year-old Ryan Nicodemus on this podcast. That'd be a hell of an interview. <laughs> <laughs> it really would be. But, but, but yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. So I mean, yeah, we're, yeah, I, I see what you're saying. So just to kind of reiterate what I was trying to say is that if you are purely making decisions based off of other people's perspectives, you're going to be miserable. But it's, it's okay to look at those perspectives, especially if you're a role model or in a position where people are looking up to you. But in order to be that role model, or, or, or uh, to be a good role model, whatever it is, I'm not trying to moralize it, but doing it in a genuine way, like that's that's the best place to come from. Not from, yep. 
well, if I let go, if I let go of X, Y, and Z, then people are going to look at me like I'm mediocre. It's like, yeah, but how do you look at you? That's the question. Yeah. You know, you know what? Accept that mediocrity. Yeah. And if you can hold on to that for a moment, you can also let that one go. Yeah. I love that. I read this quote by uh, my man Visa. Uh, this is not TK's tweet of the week, by the way, but this is uh, Visa, uh, at Visa K-A-N-V. Uh, he changes his actual name every uh, week. So uh, this week it's, <laughs> it's Visa's uh, Quantic Quibbles, but he's one of my favorite follows. But he wrote today, people's disapproval isn't necessarily an invitation to earn their approval. Ooh. You know, so, you know, all the great qualities yeah. in life are such that you have to give up your need to be thought of as someone who possesses them in order to possess them. If you want to be a saint, you have to give up your need to be regarded by others as a saint. Mm -hmm. Because being a saint means that you have to make some difficult decisions that may result in social disapproval. If you want to be great, you have to give up your need to be thought of as being great. Because being great means you have to take risk that in other people's eyes make you look like a loser. If you want to be smart, you got to give up your need to be thought of as smart. Because being smart means you got to raise your hand and say, I don't know what that means, mm -hmm. even though I'm the only one in here who's confused. Can you explain it to me? That's how you move down the path of becoming smart. All the great qualities, if you want to possess them, you have to give up the need to be thought of by other people as someone who possesses them. That's a great segue into a question we have from Instagram. Grove says, feeling the need to meet the expectations of others is a constant problem for me. How do I let go of needing the approval of others to be happy? So Grove, the approval itself is quite nice, actually. It feels good. But needing approval is a kind of prison in yeah. a way. And I think the only way to let go is to realize that acceptance does not actually serve you. It hinders whatever you're trying to accomplish. Because let's say you're writing a book, but then you need someone's acceptance or you need 100 people or 1,000 people or 10,000 people's acceptance. Well, good luck trying to tailor that book to 10,000 different mm. people, right? Mm. And so that's going to hinder your creativity. Or what if... You know, my wife accepts me, right? That's wonderful. It feels nice. But as soon as I need that acceptance from her, then I start doing things that are inauthentic. Mm -hmm. And so needing acceptance is the quickest path to inauthenticity. It's the quickest way to shed your true self. You're letting go of who you are in order to appease other people. I do need acceptance from myself. <laughs> and that's, and that's <laughs> right. about it. Like, but, you know, I've worked so hard to be able to look in the mirror and like not bullshit myself. Like that is a, um, that's something that I still struggle with. Like I, I, I still, you know, um, do everything I can to live a genuine life. And I look in the mirror and I'm like, yeah, you're living a genuine life. But every once in a while I get a little lesson where I'm like, you know what, dude, you are kind of BSing yourself on this one particular thing. Mm. But being able to like call that out and then act on it, like that is, um, that's just how I can live a more genuine life. But yes, like I 100% need acceptance in my life from myself. Do you have an example of BSing yourself? Because oh, I think yeah. that's really helpful, especially with Grove's question. Here. Oh, yeah. I mean, the the whole um, let's go Brandon story. I mean, that was where, where like if you were to ask me, like, are you inclusive? Um you know, I don't know what, what episode was that where it came out. You can go back and listen to it. Yeah, you can find our YouTube channel. We did a little excerpt there. It was called My Crazy Burning Man Experience. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I mean, there was that where you would you would have asked me. We'll put hey, a link Ryan, to that in the show notes, by the way. Yeah. Hey, Ryan, are you inclusive? Well, yeah, I'm inclusive. 
But then like I had that experience where I was like, oh, hmm. I'm actually not as inclusive as I thought I was. Right. You you were saying I'm inclusive. Why? Because you you thought inclusive was virtuous. It was a good thing. And what you realized is like, therefore, because you said it was inherently good and I must be a good person, mm. therefore I am inclusive, even yeah. when it didn't map on to your actual experience in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not like I see it as a virtuous thing as much as, um, you know, I just want to give people in life what I didn't get um, as a kid, as a young adult. Um, and that includes being seen and it includes being um, understood and respected. And so that's, that's when I think of um, inclusivity that, uh, you know, I think of those things, those things like right off the bat, I don't see mm -hmm. it as virtuous as much as I see it as um, me really trying to give something that I didn't get that I feel like I didn't get. Right. And yet those things as well can be not ideal in certain scenarios. So sure. being inclusive always mm -hmm. is not ideal. You know, if uh, a Nazi walks into this room, we're mm -hmm. not going to be inclusive. We're going to exclude him or her from from the room, most yeah, likely. I, I would. It's funny because like I would my the thought experiment is a good one, but I'm, I would go out of my way because inclusivity doesn't mean you you um, enable someone. It doesn't mean you agree with their their ways. It doesn't mean anything, but it gives them the opportunity to at least kind of um, see how you do things. Yes. If and, that and makes any at sense. At some point, you while you're being inclusive to that person and mm -hmm. you find out who they truly are, mm -hmm. at some point, it makes sense to exclude that person sure. so that you can in, be inclusive for the people for whom you want to include. Yeah. It's the, the line that we actually didn't get to talk about uh, this yeah. at Sunday Symposium. I wanted to at our last Sunday Symposium, but we ran out of time there. It, Derek Sivers had this line about proudly exclude other people. Yeah. And what does he mean by that? Because being inclusive is one is one aspect, but excluding sure. people is also, uh, for me, what I got from Derek Sivers when he says that is, yes, exclude people um, if, you, if they are outraged at you, if hmm. they are being a seagull where they're just coming in and hmm. and providing unnecessary criticism. If someone is getting in the way of my own well-being, mm -hmm. I'm going to exclude that person. Interesting. It's funny because like that, the whole let's go Brandon thing, because I would have agreed with you up until that, ex that uh, uh, experience where, I don't know, man. I mean, it's really helped me try to include as many people as possible. Again, doesn't mean I'm enabling them, but like, let's say some, a Nazi came in and they're like planning on blowing something up. Well, then of course I'm going to call the police. And I'm going to be like, okay, um, yeah, like the, the, now you're harming other people. Yes. Um, but, you know, it's it's uh, it's fascinating because like the seagulls, yes, I don't like I don't go out of my way to read comments, but, you know, somehow, you know, someone will tweet at me or something and, and it happens every once in a while. And I used to respond back and be like, you know, whatever, something snarky or a rebuttal or whatever it is. Um, and now it's more I just like, kind of look at that person and like, you know, metaphorically, I'm like, patting them on the head like i'm i'm sorry that you feel that way mm -hmm. um mm. but yeah it wouldn't really get in my way of uh, it doesn't get in my way of, of my well-being anymore i guess like when, when yeah. i think of people like that my, my point is you're still excluding that person at some point like have you ever blocked someone from twitter or instagram yeah. or whatever yeah at a certain point for sure and the Derek sivers thing is um it's it's all about business though right and that's what i love about the prep that's 
100% what I think people should do in business. You can proudly exclude 99, I would even say 99.9% of the people uh, in the world. Like the, the as, as the minimalists, there is a large chunk of the population that we are automatically not appealing towards. And that's okay. Yeah, know? and so the way that I read that, and I think here, here's where we agree, mm-hmm. is don't go out of your way to change what you're doing in order to appease everyone else. Absolutely, man. Yeah, yeah a, a quick word on, on inclusiveness. For me, my personal definition of being inclusive means I entertain the possibility of value and redemption in everyone. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, I'm willing to entertain the possibility that you have value and that redemption can be a reality for you. Amen. On the other hand, it's also true that every healthy relationship, including those ones that we're inclusive about, requires boundaries in order to be healthy. So being inclusive cannot mean you can come all up in my space, say whatever you want, behave however you want to behave without any consideration of my well-being, mm-hmm. my dignity, my individual rights, and so on, right? Mm-hmm. Because every healthy relationship has boundaries. And so it's important to note that being inclusive doesn't mean being without boundary. A word on approval. Grove, I love your name, by the way. Approval to me is like money. No one desires it as an end in and of itself, but rather as a means to an end. They chase it, they seek it, they pursue it, which is okay because of what they believe it will empower them to do, right? I want money not so that I can just put it under my mattress until I die. I want money because I believe that it will empower me to create an experience or to obtain something that I really value. It's the same with approval. We want approval because we believe it empowers us to do something else. If I say to you guys, hey, I'm going to move to New York. I got this great business idea. I'm going to start up this business out in Brooklyn, man. And you guys look at me like, oh, yeah, okay. And I go, oh, is is something wrong, guys? (laughs) Y'all don't like my idea? Why am I concerned? Because now I'm afraid of something. I'm afraid that every time I bring up my business idea to you guys, it's going to be awkward and I'm not going to get a pleasant conversation. I'm also afraid that if I go out there and try the business idea and I fail, I'm probably not going to get a lot of support from you guys because you're just going to hit me up with the I told you so or we never thought it was a good idea in the first place. And so what I'm seeking after is some sort of comfort knowing that one, I can get some support when I struggle and two, I have somebody that I can talk about things I'm passionate about with and it'll be a fun conversation. So your approval is a means to an end and when you disapprove of my idea, it makes me feel afraid. So Here's what I would do if I'm in a situation where I'm struggling with other people's disapproval. I would ask myself, what is it I seek through the approval? What is approval? What is the end for which approval is the means, right? What Mm -hmm. is it that I really want? And then ask yourself, is there a way I can give that to myself? Or is there a way I can get that from someone else? Or can I get that from the same people in a different way without requiring them to buy into all aspects of my lifestyle or dreams? What a great question, because we often think we want approval. We have no idea what we're going to do once we get it. Right. Except we're going to try to now maintain it forever. So now that I have Ryan's approval, now I have to figure out what other 17 things must I do this month in order to retain his approval. And I don't even know what I'm getting out of that approval at this point, other than it maybe it gives me this little feel-good feeling for a moment, but then there's the dread of what? 
losing his approval. Right. And in that case, it's not benefiting me at all. It's hindering my own well-being. And that's when the need for approval simply turns into clutter. That's right. Ryan, what time is it? You know what time it is. It's time for the lightning round. <laughs> now, yeah. Jordan's, Jordan's going to put some really cool effects in right there. Uh, this is where we answer your questions from social media. Yeah. Yes, indeed. You can follow The Minimalist on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Minimalist. We used to answer these questions via text message, but... As you heard on our last episode, 365, mm -hmm. we stopped doing the text message thing because it we was... don't negotiate with terrorists. <laughs> 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 it looks like LC has a question for us, Alabama. How do we become more psychologically flexible so we can increase our capacity for happiness? Now, during the lightning round, this is where we do our best to answer questions with a short, shareable, less than 140 character response. We put the text to these minimal maxims in the show notes so you can copy and share our pithy answers on social media if you'd like. You can find all of those minimal maxims over in the show notes at theminimalists.com slash podcast. Professor Sean, put 60 seconds on the clock for me. LC, rigidity forms a container for discontent. And I am speaking from experience. I am Mr. Rigid. I, um, I, I like to be more wiggly whenever I can. I certainly have, have become more flexible, as your question asks. Uh, psychologically flexible, because emotionally flexible intellectually flexible because as I become more rigid and I need things to be exactly this way as a person with OCD I want everything to be just right every single time in this order in this sequence I need it to be like this it stresses me out it makes me miserable but if I can let go of some of that rigidity I can become more free-flowing then it makes room for contentment mm. You and me. I'll go. I'll go. All right. Pod, or, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Professor Sean, put 60 seconds on the clock. Um, happiness is a byproduct of living a meaningful life. So flexible, uh, flexible, what, what, what do they call it? Oh, my goodness. Uh, psychology, psychologically flexible. Here's what I think about that. Um, Let's say this is my psychology, this glass right here, okay? Um, the question presupposes that I could somehow make this glass bigger. And, and I don't agree with that. I think that the glass that you have is the glass that you have. There's a little bit of water in this glass. And so if I want to put more in there, I've got to ask myself, what, do I need this water in this glass right now? What else do I want to put in here? Mm -hmm. But trying to make your uh, psychology more flexible I don't think it's a matter of that as much as like, what are you putting into that? And do you need to get rid of anything? Love it. Okay. So mine is the goal isn't happiness. It's emotional versatility. The point isn't to exist in a perpetual state of always feeling good. It's about learning to relate to the full range of the emotional spectrum in a way that's healthy in a way that's harmonious. In the same way that you don't want to be the kind of person who can only dance to one type of song or one genre of music, you want to be the kind of person who can find your groove and establish a rhythm no matter what the feeling is. Think of it like the seasons, right? 
You've got fall, you've got winter, you've got summer, you've got spring. Sometimes you don't want it to be cold, but it is. Sometimes you don't want it to be rainy because you want it to have a picnic, but there's something that you can do in any kind of weather. You can't go to a picnic when it's snowing, but you can go sledding. And the summer doesn't allow you to do that, right? So the four questions I want you to ask is, what am I feeling? How is it serving me? What is it teaching me? And how can I express it creatively and constructively? In just a minute, he did it. What we're really talking about there, TK and Ryan, is when we're being more flexible, it allows us to let go because we're accepting the circumstances that are right there in front of us. Mm. We got a bunch more to cover. Before we do, let's check in with the uh, the live stream. Alabama, do we have any questions from our Patreon live stream? Every Tuesday at 10 a.m., we do a Patreon live stream and they get to make comments, smart alecky remarks, and also <laughs> ask a few questions. What do you got for us, Alabama? We have a question today from Catherine. She says, I live with my parents and they watch the news 24-7. Mm. There's so much information, clutter, and advertising when they watch TV. How can I detach myself from all of that clutter? I'm so glad she didn't ask, how do I force my parents to stop watching the news? (laughs) Yeah. It's it's always like with with the clutter stuff, it's like, how do I get my husband to get rid of all of his things in the garage? Yeah. I'm glad because that's my answer. Force your parents to stop watching the news. (laughs) Oh, man. That's, uh, do they force you to be in the room with them? Right. Yeah, like that's the question I would ask. And, and if they do, then, um, that, then there's something else going on. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, if, if, if I'm living with someone under their house, under their rules, mm-hmm. um, then yes, they get to decide what pretty much what goes. That's um, right. but I probably, uh, would have my, like when I live with my, my parents, like I, with my mom or my dad, like I had my own little space, even though when I was living in Tallahassee, we were in like a double wide trailer, and my space was like, I would sleep on the couch because I had no bed. Uh-huh. <laughs> so my space is my brother's room. And I would force them out if I wanted to be alone. I would just kick them out of the room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, what you're talking about there is, is setting up some sort of new boundaries. Even if, even if you don't have your own space in your own house, there mm-hmm. are other places you can go where you don't have to be exposed. Now, the problem with society now is we used to have a lot of these sort of interstitial zones where there were not... And there was, we weren't bombarded with information clutter, right? Mm-hmm. I was at the doctor's office yesterday and I'm in the waiting room and they have the local news blasting on the T, this giant TV in this tiny little waiting room. There's this huge, like 80 inch TV. Like they, they really overdid it. <laughs> yeah. And it was so loud. And I was trying to read actually this book mm-hmm. and it was impossible, right? And so in that moment, I realized, okay, I have to be here right now. But I don't have to be in this waiting room. So I walked out to their little patio area and just let the sun hit my face and realized like, okay, I can be in a new space. I can be in a new environment. I don't always have to be there with them because I think what happens is we often fall into someone else's habits, their patterns, and our life becomes habitual, not Mm. based on the habits or patterns that we've set up or designed, but becomes based on their rituals, which they didn't even think about either because someone else gave them those rituals. And it becomes viral in the sense that it's contagious. Their pattern becomes contagious to me. Their poor habits become my poor habits. Their indiscretions become my indiscretions. Their anxiety becomes my anxiety. Their stress becomes 
my stress. Their discontent becomes my discontent. And then what happens is I cling to it. And I cling to it so hard that all of a sudden I start passing that on to other people in my That's life. Right. And they're feeling the anxieties that I picked up from someone else. When in reality, I can release those things. Mm-hmm. And as I release them, well, then there's no more anxiety to distribute to other people. That's right. That's right. All the things about changing your environment where possible, maybe even getting a good pair of headphones or whatever. But there's one other thing I'll add, and that is I'm not a big fan of trying to force other people to change, but I am a big fan of giving myself the chance to see if I can have influence on my environment, especially if there's a respectful or diplomatic way to go about it. So the people that you live with, yeah, they got the right to watch whatever they want to watch. But you also have the right to try and see if they will be responsive to a polite attempt to influence them. And so if I'm in that space, I'm at least going to say one time, hey, guys, is it possible if we can just like watch something else? Is it possible we could have maybe just one hour where we play music through the TV or put it on something else because I, I feel you with the news. I get it. You know, I, you know, no judgment here, but man, I feel like listening to that stuff over and over again just makes my head explode. And I would just appreciate it if we could mix it up a little bit. And they might say, nah, tough luck, dude. We're going to watch the news. Okay, cool. I now know where I stand for sure. That's not an option for me. And I got to affect what I can control. But half the time when you make it a habit to do stuff like that, People will see themselves through you reflecting back to them mm. and they'll say, oh, I didn't even notice that that I had it going on like that or that I was having that effect on you. We actually like having you here and we don't want you to feel like that. Sure. What would you like to watch instead? Or yeah, maybe we'll cool it down. Sometimes you win. Mm. Five mm. words that changed my life. Five words totally changed my life. Would you be willing to? <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. Would you be willing to change the channel? Would you be willing to turn that down? Would you be willing to do dinner at 5.30 instead of 7? Would you be willing to unplug the Wi-Fi router? Would you be willing to help me tidy up the living room? Would you be willing to make the bed with me? Would you be willing to help me? Because I don't want to change you. I don't want to improve you. I don't want to better you. I simply want to love you. In order for me to love you, we have to be able to coexist in our space together. So would you be willing to, I get this is my problem, this is my issue, but would you be willing to help me with that issue? We got so much more to talk about. We're going to we're going to dive into TK's home. It's a little bit of an intervention here with all these throw pillows that he has. Oh, I'm so excited. <laughs> uh, every week on the private podcast, we do a home tour where we go into one of our homes. We're going to be looking. TK moved back to California recently. We got some photos of his new living space. We're going to dive into that. We also got, I think, obsolete objects. We have, oh, we're going to talk about bootlicking as a spiritual practice. I got a new rule for you guys as well. I call it the hate that thing rule. And uh, you're actually going to be a little bit surprised by what that actually means. But um, we'll, we'll dive into that on the private podcast as well. Obsolete objects, advertisements suck a whole bunch more for you over there as well. But first, Malabama, what do you got for us? Here are some minimalist comments and insights from our listeners. Hey, this is Jane in Los Angeles. I used to have a lot of trouble making decisions. Um, and now whenever I go out to eat and I'm looking at a menu, I get five seconds to pick. 
Um, and making quick, fast decisions has helped me get better and more comfortable with making decisions in other parts of my life. Hi, guys. I'm Brittany, originally from Montana and now living in New York. I wanted to call because you guys speak a lot about intention. While I believe that intention is important when buying, I also think we should use intention when we're decluttering. For example, I'm a huge movie fan and recently got rid of over 60 DVDs. Instead of dropping them off at the thrift store to be sold, I donated them all to my local library. Like so, my boyfriend was finally ready to give up his Xbox, so we found a local shelter that frequently has children, and we donated the games and consoles to them. While it does create a few extra trips, your things can really create value for someone else if you let them. Welcome back to the Minimalist Private Podcast. All right, y'all. Before we get into our other segments and we we peer into TK's home. He doesn't know that we set up cameras all throughout boom, his boom, house. Boom. <laughs> well, just in his bedroom in both bathrooms. Yeah, TK, why do you think we are the ones who picked out your apartment for you? And... <laughs> it's all Why is such a good deal? <laughs> why do I have this elf on the shelf? Oh, don't worry about it. <laughs> Let's read some more about Les, y'all. There's a little segment we do where we read an article as a jump-off point. I'll put a link to this article in the show notes. Well, I won't, but podcast Sean will. This is called... This is from our good friend, Cal Newport. His uh, blog is called Study Hacks, and the title of this article is Taking a Break from Social Media Makes You Happier and Less Anxious, to which I respond, no duh. (laughs) (laughs) Duh. Now, I will uh, read this real quick, but you can read the whole article on your own. He says, when I came across a particularly well-executed study, it presents a clear and convincing results, Uh, blah, blah, blah. Which brings me to a smart new paper written by a team of researchers from the University of Bath and published last week in the Journal of Cyber Psychology, Behavior and Social Networking. It's titled, Taking a One-Week Break from Social Media Improves Well-Being, Depression, and Anxiety. Now, I have some problems with these types of studies because they're not real scientific studies. It's impossible to do a true scientific study on a human population. You can't lock them in a metabolic ward and control every other factor except social media. And by the way, you'd have to do it with identical twins for like a 30-year period. And so this is epidemiology. It's self-reporting, right? And so whenever we self-report, there isn't like a, there's no way to really measure their happiness level. I I can't hook up a happiness meter to Ryan and say, oh, his happiness improved. So it is all self-reporting. And it could be that removing social media from your life for a week didn't actually make you less depressed, but doing the things that you replaced it with are the things that actually made you, oh yeah, you know what I did? I went out in nature. I went camping. I went fishing. I just went grounding. I went swimming. I watched my kids play soccer, whatever it is. Yeah. Maybe it's those things that improved your well-being. Or it could be that you've just been told this, that social media is making you anxious and therefore removing it because now you have that sort of cognitive bias of, I remove the thing that's making me anxious. But here's what we can say. Social media, by and large, makes people more anxious. In fact, one might say it's designed to do so. What makes us more anxious? Stimuli. Well, Mm -hmm. what is the most stimulating thing we have? It's that 79th organ, that glowing screen that is constantly tugging at, at us. Take me out of the pocket. Hold me, caress me, scroll me. <laughs> faster. <laughs> scroll me faster. <laughs> it's, me, a, well, it's, me. it's a comparison machine. 
I think that for me, like that's a lot of the anxiety is like, um, I don't know, looking at everyone living their best life mm-hmm. and I'm like, oh, I mean, I'm living my best life, but it's not that good. It's not that lit. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You can get me my best life better than this. Yeah. <laughs> so TK, talk to me about this. And then I really want to talk to the, the why, because I think we know the what and the how. We know how social media makes us more anxious, more depressed. We also know what the problem is. It's social media. But why is it such a problem for us? And then why do we keep going back to it? Why do I feel the need to constantly scroll Instagram or Twitter or TikTok to get these little food bits? We were talking during the break about... um well, empty calories, right? Like we are all addicted to empty calories, essentially. Now that can be food, sugar, pixie sticks taste delicious, mm. right? But they don't have any nutrition in them. And I would say the same thing about social media. Quite often it tastes delicious because it gives us that dopamine rush, but it's not nutritionally dense. I don't walk away after a 45-minute session on Instagram feeling enriched, feeling satisfied, feeling fulfilled. In fact, I often feel empty. I feel less than what I was 45 minutes ago. Yeah, so finite and infinite games, right? James P. Cars, a finite game is any game where the ultimate aim is the completion of play through the establishment of clear uh, losers and winners. An infinite game is a game where the purpose is to perpetuate the play. Social media is an infinite game of anxiety. It is a playground that thrives on engagement. When you go on social media, the purpose is to keep you engaging. Social media loses if we go on there and we say, oh, that was a really great video. I'm satisfied now. I'm going to go live my life. Oh, wow, that was a really resourceful article. That was a great listicle that helped me figure out how to change my flat tire. I'm good. Thank you, social media. I'll see you next time. I have some sort of question that needs to be answered. If that happens, all of the social media sites are absolutely freaking out, right? They lose if they achieve some kind of satisfaction that makes you spend more time doing something else. The name of the game for them is we're only winning if we can keep people playing and they never arrive at a state where they feel like they have definitively lost or won. It's an infinite game of anxiety and it's designed to produce that. So it's no wonder that when you take a break from something that has no other purpose other than to keep you constantly engaged, that you feel a certain measure of relief. Imagine if you had a personal relationship like that, where it's like, hey, I'm not talking to you because our conversation has a goal, some question we want to answer or some topic we want to play with. I'm only talking to you for the purpose of keeping you talking. And the moment you seem mm. like you're going to be quiet, I, I got to say something else to keep you talking. Well, 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 your mama's stupid. Okay, now I got you talking. It doesn't matter what I say. I got you talking, right? Even right. if you're angry, of course you're going to be anxious when you're engaging someone like that. I would take it even mm. one extra level. Like if Ryan and I are friends mm-hmm. and I'm only trying to engage him to keep his attention. Yeah. But also because I want to sell him products or services. So Ryan, you're my friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, did I tell you about my new shoes? <laughs> if you just use this promo code, Mm-hmm. Then <laughs> what, what, what's crazier to even take it a step further is if I knew that you were trying to sell me stuff, if I knew that you were trying, cause we know this about these platforms. Right. Yeah. And you're like, and the funny thing yeah. you were talking earlier, we, we were doing this TikTok live 
with the beginning of the podcast and you were saying you were watching a guy who was doing just unpeeling an egg and there were like 2 million people watching that. Here's the irony of that. I was one of those 2 million people. No, that's not the irony. (laughs) The irony is if he were there in front of you, simply unpeeling an egg, I think most of those people would be far less interested. Hmm. Why is that? There's something about the glowing screen that compels us, but also there's something about the madness of crowds. Because, oh, because if you saw that two other people were watching it, you might be like, oh, there's just, this isn't popular. Only two people have liked this. Yeah. So now there's two million people. Oh, what am I missing out on? Yeah, I don't want to miss out on this. I will say it was, yeah. um, there was an OC, you would have loved it. There's like this OCD thing <laughs> that was like, I had to see him complete peeling this egg. So it was a raw egg and he was taking the shell off to like just leave the membrane. So it was like, it was, it was crazy. But I want to know why Instagram feeds. Do, do you, do you guys get this with Instagram? Like it feeds me play this song in three X. It'll, it'll, I don't know. And then they give a reason as to why it'll ruin your childhood or play this song in three X and it'll blow your mind. Yes. Mm. And then my idiot self is like, okay. And then I do it and I'm like, oh, I just totally got trapped into doing this thing that really is meaningless. <laughs> it didn't do anything. <laughs> it doesn't for do me. anything. Yeah. But isn't that the metaphor for social <sighs> media? Rarely does it do much for us. And yet we feel so compelled that we keep going back. However, it can absolutely do something for us. The way that the minimalists use social media is to broadcast, to talk about something that is meaningful to us. Mm-hmm. Not that we're trying to convert anyone or change their mind, but in hopes that someone else might find this valuable as well. And as long as they do, we continue to use it in that way. But we never want to add to the noise. We don't want to create media clutter. If anything, we want to cut through the media clutter with something meaningful. And taking that break can allow you to come back and be able to do those things more more consciously, more mindfully. Let's move on to some talkaboutables. little segment that we do where... We talk about something as a jump off point, maybe something we thought of recently or current event. I've got a new rule for you guys. Give it to me. I call it the hate that thing rule. (laughs) I noticed this with my wife recently. She she was in our closet. You know, we share a little closet together and she tried on this sweater and she's like, I don't really like that. What do you think about I don't. And I'm like, it doesn't matter what I think right now. Mm-hmm. I can tell by your body language, by your features in this moment. And I think this rule applies well, well beyond clothes. But I think it especially applies to clothes. We buy something as an aspirational purchase. You see that <laughs> shirt. It looked great on the mannequin with the paisleys. And oh, it went well with those leather pants that were on the mannequin. And like, oh, yeah, I will be as sexy as that mannequin if I just buy that, if I put down my credit card and I take that home. And then what happens? You try it on. You're like, ah, that doesn't really fit me well. My love handles are showing. I got a little muffin top in this. What am I doing with this? And then it just sits in the back of the closet because it looked really good in the store under those lights. But when you have it at home and you're like, oh, you know what? I don't really like it. I don't really enjoy it. It doesn't feel like me. I, if I'm being honest. I kind of hate that thing. And that's where the hate that thing rule comes into play. If you try on a shirt or you try on a kitchen utensil, Ryan puts his toaster on his head sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) I saw it on TikTok. (laughs) If you try on something from your closet or from anywhere else in your house and you're not absolutely like, yes, 
hell yeah, this is one of my favorite pieces of clothes. Mm. Or worse, if you're like, oh, I just don't really like it, then get rid of it. Mm. If you hate that thing, the next time you try it on, you can give yourself permission to let go because you're not going to magically start liking the thing that you hate right now. <laughs> yeah, isn't it funny though? Because what if every time you're like, do you guys like this shirt? Do you guys like this movie? Do you like this drink? And everyone's like, yeah, it's amazing. Mm. What does that mean? Well, we go, oh, okay, maybe something's wrong with me. Yes. Maybe I should just buy it. <laughs> you know, maybe I should eat it anyway. And by the way, if I really dislike the shirt that I'm wearing, I feel uncomfortable, it feels unnatural, and I come in here, and even if TK and Ryan are both like genuinely, oh, I really like that shirt on you, it's still not for me. It's for them, but I don't wear my clothes in order to impress someone else. That's actually really uncool, right? Yeah. To always try to impress other people. The most impressive people, I teach this in my how to, be, how to Write Better writing class, the most impressive writers are the ones who don't try to look impressive. And the most impressive fashionable people are the ones who aren't trying to impress you with their wardrobe. They simply look confident and secure and grounded in whatever they're wearing. Yeah. Now, just to be clear too, Josh would not go in the closet and be like, oh, I hate that shirt of Becca's and then get rid of her shirt. <laughs> <laughs> no, in fact, I liked what she was wearing, but I could tell in that moment she didn't like it. Mm. It didn't feel good to her. And so I was like, Bex, I, I like it just fine. But what matters is how you feel about that sweater. Mm. And if you feel like, oh, I just don't feel comfortable in this. It doesn't feel like me. It's okay. Yeah. You can let it go. Mm -hmm. And with your career and with your relationships, because how many of us wear job titles that don't fit, wear dating relationships that don't fit, mm. wear career aspirations and all other sorts of things that don't fit just because somebody says, hey, being a banker looks good on you. Driving that car looks good on you. But the whole time you feel out of place, you feel awkward, you feel stressed, you feel tight like you're not yourself. But somebody says it looks good on you. So you make yourself wear it. Mm. It's not a good look. You yeah. had a good life. I hate that thing, so I'm going to let it go. Let's talk about something's fascinating. We're basketball fans over here. At least two of us are. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, three of us, if you count Danny Unknown. And I, I noticed something, and so this is just going to be more of a, a metaphor for something more broad. My favorite team is the Utah Jazz. And they essentially traded all their superstars during the offseason. They got rid of Donovan. They got... They get rid of 80% of their starting lineup. So their first, mm. their, their five people who start on the team, four of them are gone now, wow. right? The two best for sure, yeah. Well, yeah, and one would say they're four best because yeah, yep. Royce O'Neal's gone and Boyan Bogdanovich is gone. But then, yeah, Rudy Gobert, Donovan Mitchell. So their starting lineup, which this is what was a great team they got rid of, that it was two years ago, they had the best record in the NBA. And so, but they lost this sort of chemistry along the way and they weren't ever able to turn it into some sort of championship to win. And you juxtapose that with now, they got rid of all their superstars. They got rid of most of their stars in general. And they just have this team of really scrappy, eager, hungry new guys. They're supposed to be tanking this season. They're supposed to be mm. intentionally losing games. And the first three games of the year, they won all three against three teams that are all championship contenders. Mm. Well, what's bad is it's, it's not intentional. I want to make it a distinction here because intentional tanking is when you 
you kind of could or should be winning, but you deliberately choose to lose in order to position yourself to get like the rewards of being a bad team, which is uh, you get to make an early draft pick for the best college players. But in their case, management gave a team that basically ought to be losing. Yes. Mm. And I, the reason I say intentionally tanking is they got rid of their superstar. Right, they right, they right, got right. rid of a winning team. Yeah. Right. And now they have all of these sort of pieces that usually they wouldn't start on a championship team even, but they're starting here and they're winning. That's awesome. They won their first three games and you juxtapose that with Danny's favorite team, the Lakers, who have two of the best players in NBA history on the team. Mm -hmm. Actually, three of the best players in NBA history. You have LeBron James, Anthony Davis, Russell Westbrook, and they're 0-3. They lost their first three games and... I'm just interested in your insights from both of you. Like, what does this mean when you blow something up and then you start anew? There is a energy there that that you can't really plan. It's like this mm. unplanned spontaneity that is creating something magical. Hmm. Yeah, that chemistry is still a thing. And sometimes you can bring together the most talent and lack chemistry. And sometimes you can get rid of the best talent, but that actually improves chemistry. You know, the egos disappear and the people that come together all have something in common. They work really hard and it, and it goes well. An, a similar sports re uh, reference for, there's a, a documentary out right now called The Redeem Team. And it's about how, you know, the, the, the game of basketball was invented in America. And that's always been an American sport. And we would send our college players to the Olympics to play against the best professionals in other countries, and we'd still just destroy them. But over time, it got more competitive. Our college players started to lose. And for the first time in history, the U.S. sent what was called the dream team, professional athletes for the first time. And they would just win games by like 30, 40, 50 points. In fact, it wasn't even a game. You know, the, the other countries, their players would be taking pictures with our players before the game, right? right? <laughs> like clearly conceding the point. But then the rest of the world started catching up. Mm -hmm. And the U.S. would continue to send its best players. And we started to see something interesting, which is just because you got all the best players does it mean that's the successful formula for winning? Because we would send our best talent and we would still lose because we didn't have chemistry. And, and in order to change and achieve victory, they had to focus on investing in the guys getting to know each other, the guys knowing how to, how to play together in a way that the other countries were doing because they were spending time together. So chemistry is, 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 is as important as talent. Yeah, there's, well, some, there's something to be said about um, having the guts to like get rid of the best players. So... Let's say, uh, I don't know, you know, who these players went to, but let's say all of a sudden, whatever team they're on, like they start, you know, winning championships. Mm -hmm. um, I would, I would, you know, posit that if they kept those great players, like they would not be winning championships. That's right. So it's hard to do that when you, when you, when you look at another team like, oh, well, this is what worked for them. Maybe uh -huh. it'll work for us. But yeah. like. To, to be able to be like, oh, uh, that's great that that works for them. That's that's not what works for us. And we're going to give these other players an opportunity. I mean, that's pretty huge. I'll, I'll say, too, this reminds me of, um, so I'm like, I'm an NFL fan, which I don't know. Is there any football fan? I don't think so. I think I'm the only one. <laughs> oh, no. Are you a football fan? Oh, I didn't realize you, you, liked, you liked the old pig skin. <laughs> so when Drew Bledsoe got hurt uh, at, at the Patriots, and Tom Brady stepped up. Uh -huh. Oh, yeah. yeah. He was like, oh, like there was something that lit inside of Tom Brady where he was like, this is my chance. Yes. I, I have to prove myself. 
so there might be something going on with the Utah Jazz. Uh, it's absolutely the, it. in the same scenario where they're like, "Oh, we have to like prove that we're worthy of this starting position." Each one of these guys, like, "Hey, I want a spot on whatever this team is going to end up being, or I want a spot in the in, in the NBA." And now I finally have an opportunity to prove myself. Now, let me relate this back to minimalism real quick because that's what I want to do with this whole thing. Is sometimes you have to get rid of your best things, your favorite things, mm. to make room for the new life, right? Because those components of that team, Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert, two of the best players in the NBA, two all-stars, they just weren't right together. They And so it worked well for a period, right? But they couldn't keep holding on to them. And I think the knee-jerk reaction is, well, no, these are great, great players. We'd be dumb to get rid of them. It's like, well, maybe they are great players, but they're no longer great for you. Mm. And I would say the same thing with any of the things that we have in our life. Yeah, you might have the best toaster or the best couch or the best mattress or the best sheets or the best sweater or the best pair of leather pants. But if those things aren't serving you anymore, getting rid of them doesn't just eliminate the physical clutter and the emotional clutter and the psychological clutter, but it creates the space for the new things that will add value. And you don't know what those things are going to be, but you're simply making room so you can figure that out. Yeah. yeah. Mm. It pays sometimes to look down a road and say, I know where that leads. No use in me walking down that road again. And sometimes we can do that with our things, right? It's like, yeah, this is valuable. It is it is nice. But you also know what the ceiling is and you want to go higher than that. And there's no way to go higher other than to let go of that thing, which it can take you high, but not as high as you want to go. TK, you and I were on the phone this weekend and we were talking about our disdain <laughs> for people who not the people themselves, but the action of what I would call bootlicking. <laughs> bootlicking. We that's, talked that's about, I like to say it, bootlicking. <laughs> we talked about a little bit on the podcast, the private podcast last week. Mm. But, you know, advertising is a form of like bootlicking to now appeasing advertisers, I should say, not just advertising on its own, but doing things to appease advertisers. I see this all the time now with YouTubers. They can't say suicide. They have to now come up with euphemisms for the word suicide. Why? Because advertisers don't like the word suicide. So now you have to say something that actually sounds far more offensive, like, oh, he deleted himself. Mm. It's like, mm. I know what you mean. Yeah. And by the way, it doesn't make it any less true. It's just that advertisers are now controlling and funneling your speech and you're willing to lick their boots of tide so you can get $16 in ad cents or even worse, $1,600. Oh, so your price is $1,600? You're willing to censor yourself for $1,600. You're willing to be told what to do, what to say, when to say it, how to say it so that you can earn a little bit of money from your YouTube revenue. It's absurd. We, we've become professional bootlickers mm. and we're changing the way that we talk. We can't say this woman was sexually assaulted. <clears throat> we have, have to actually take away some of the power and, and say SA and otherwise YouTube will demonetize us. Mm. Okay. What, what does that say about us? I'm willing to change what I say 
I'm willing to skirt the truth or soften the truth in order to appease advertisers. And you uh, use this great term on the phone. You said it's sort of like bootlicking as a spiritual practice. <laughs> That's right. So let's let's push push bootlicking a little bit more than so that we can distinguish it from compromise. Because there are moments in life where it makes sense to compromise. Well, I'm not really a big fan of that, but I'll tolerate a certain measure of that. I mean, just think of the imagery of bootlicking, right? You are getting down on the floor and you are cleaning another person's boots with your tongue. That's mm. undignified. That's mm. literally beneath you. And I think bootlicking is when you do things that you know are beneath you out of fear, a fear that this is the best that I can do or a fear that I won't be able to survive. I won't be able to make it in life. I won't be a player in the game unless I compromise my own values, not what TK's values are for you, but your own. And you know what that is for you. It's kind of like if all three of us are laughing and joking, like, ha, 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 yeah, that's really funny. And then Danny Unknown walks into the room and we're all afraid of him. And we're just like, oh, uh, why would you say something like that, Josh? That's not funny. And, and then I start pretending to be angry about something that I'm not really angry about just because I'm scared that Danny's going to, you know, punch me in the face or something. Maybe we're making fun of the Lakers. He loves Russell Westbrook and we're making fun of Westbrook or something. And, you know, as a matter of fact, I did see that. That, that I'm glad I thought of that. There's a clip online I just saw yesterday where Russell Westbrook is walking to the locker room and some fan says something like, you suck. And Westbrook comes out and says, what'd you say? And he's like, we need you, baby. We need you. Uh. We need you, baby. Keep, you know, keep, keep your head in the game. And it's like, that's bootlicking, right? Because that's not what you really think. That's not how you really feel. And I understand why you did it. You know, it's, it's your business. But bootlicking is when you kind of grovel you know, out of fear. Uh, spiritual practice is, is any activity or set of activities which when persisted in for a long enough period of time, they transform who you are. And bootlicking is a negative spiritual practice, but usually spiritual practices, like if you meditate, you, you improve like self-control or you improve inner peace. But I describe bootlicking as a spiritual practice because many people who bootlick, they do so because they think, well, if I just lick boots for a few months or a few years, I'll be all right and I'll make enough FU money to live the life that I really want to live. But when you lick boots, you transform who you are. You can't compromise yourself day in and day out by stooping beneath your dignity and making a yes man of yourself, looking yourself in the mirror with shame every day, and then just get out of the game when you decide you want to get out of the game. You're going to have to do a lot of inner work in order to learn how to be a self-respecting, dignified human being again. Boot licking always has costs, and you can't just turn it on and turn it off like a switch. Yeah. Man, I have this thought rattling around that we're all bootlickers. It's just a question of like, whose boots are we licking? But maybe it goes back to the compromise thing because like I think about uh, my landlord, right? Like there are certain things that I have to do to appease my landlord. And if I don't, then I get evicted. Um, I, so I, But are you compromising your values and who you are? Are you stooping below who you are in order right. to appease your landlord? Right. And there so are certain things he has to do for you so, too. Yeah, that's true. That's yeah. true. So this is where we differentiate um, the compromise and the boot licking. Yes. Is it's exactly what Josh just said. Are we compromising our values? Are we compromising who we are? Um, so anytime we're doing that, that's when that's when bootlicking occurs. Is that what? Okay, cool. I was yeah, just curious. Yeah. I think that I'm rather compelled by people who refuse to do bootlicking, even if I don't 
really like their perspective, their point of view. Mm. You know, Kanye West has been in uh, the media a lot recently. Yay, as he's known now, formerly known as Kanye West. And while I don't really like the ideas that he has been espousing, mm. the thing that I've respected along the way is... A, he's not willing to apologize with empty apologies, right? Mm. Quite often you see the opposite. He was on Drink Champs, a very popular podcast with Nori, who, by the way, is named after one of the biggest drug dealer dictators of all time, Noriega, right? (laughs) And I mean, Nori's known for being, I mean, his biggest song was Super Thug. He's known as being like the anti-bootlicker. And yet when he was on, when when Ye was on Drink Champs, Mm Nori had to go around and do an apology tour afterward. Oh, wow. And I was so... W- weren't some people criticizing him saying you should have never had him on, on your show? You shouldn't yes. have interviewed him? Yeah, you should have yeah. never interviewed him as a journalist. And the worst part to me is I heard him on one of the interviews. I think it was on The Breakfast Club. He said, well, we call it drink champs, not think champs. As though it's okay, especially as a, as a black man, to be like, Oh, you know what? Yeah, well, it's okay, cool if we're just out here drinking, clowning around, but like, no, we're this isn't a thinking show. We're not allowed to think. Well, what's interesting is if Kanye had went on that show and broke down in tears and been like, I screwed up. I don't know what got into me and why I said something so foolish. And I know and expect that I'm going to have to pay the price for my sins for the rest of my life and I deserve everything they throw at me and I'm just going to go shut up and go into rehab people would have praised Noreen for bringing that out of him, for having the big moment, right? So what people praise you for and hate you for often depends on the results. They say they're angry because he came on the show. That's not why why they're angry. Because if he came on the show and had a different result, they would be praising him, right? So they're angry at something else. I'll invent a new term for what I think Kanye is doing, and that is boot kicking. Mm. Um. One of the reasons why I said when we talked about him before is, you know, like I'm slow to defend and slow to celebrate someone's cancellation. I like to take my time and really analyze things. And I did not rush to his defense, nor did I rush to say, yeah, I want to see his bank accounts canceled, even if he does something bad. One of the reasons I didn't rush to his defense is because. I think he's getting what he wants. Mm. Now, now, I don't know how strong his predictive powers are in terms of being able to anticipate all the different ways people might try to cancel him, but I do not believe he is in territory that he didn't anticipate. I think he said exactly what he said, how he said it, because he is in this inflamed space that he wants to be in. This is where he likes to play. Yes. You know, so he's boot kicking. You know, he's like stirring up the hornet's mm. nest uh, to see what he can do with that. There are other people who are in this space who refuse to bootlick. I mean, I think of people like Vodi Bakum, uh, Nori Muhammad. I mean, these are people who have like they're grounded in principles that I strongly disagree with, but mm. I find their material really compelling Hmm. because they refuse to apologize for their own values. And that is compelling for a bunch of reasons. Tell me why do I find that so compelling? Is it the integrity? Is it the, it's not the righteousness or maybe it is, I don't know, but there's something there that I find really compelling that they're, they're, in the face of adversity, these people are essentially uncancelable, whether it's Kanye, Nori Muhammad, even like someone like Richard Spencer. 
yeah. who I find completely deplorable. Yeah. Offensive. It, sure. I could, I find, well, I mean, I don't, uh, I, they, no one can offend me. Only I can offend me. Sure, sure. But, but and so I, I don't, I, mean, I don't get offended by any of them. Yeah. But, um, I, I understand what, what, where you're going with that. I mm-hmm. don't get, a, and I think maybe that's a, a particular superpower that I have is, I can see all of them. I can see Vody Bakum and I can see so many people get so offended by his beliefs. I see the things that Kanye West saying and so many people are offended by it. And it's like, mm-hmm. I can understand why you would be offended by it, but you are offending yourself in, in, in this instance. Yeah. Well, so well, why Ka- am I Kanye, so... Okay, Kanye wants to offend. Vody's doing something different. Vody doesn't want to offend, but he knows that people are going to be offended by him. And he doesn't and re- mind. And, and, he, and he doesn't apologize for being who he truly is. I don't know what Kanye actually believes. I, I think what how what Vody presents is what he really believes. I don't think there's any dishonesty in that man. Vody's beliefs are exactly what he depicts him to be. Kanye, I don't know what his beliefs are, to be honest. He's always playing games. Mm. And I don't know what kind of game he's playing right now. So I'll tell you why I think you you respect uh people like Vody Bachman is because while there is such a thing as legitimate outrage, legitimate disagreement legitimate pushback, there is also such a thing as an industry of people who thrive on making other people squirm. Mm. We deceive ourselves and we choose to be naive if we pretend like this doesn't exist. There have always been people at every level of life, in the media, out of the media, who enjoy nothing more than watching other people back down and get really afraid when they interrogate them on their beliefs, you know? And you, you start, you know, walking it back. Well, uh, I really meant this and I didn't mean that or I, mm. I don't want anybody to, to dislike me or mm. anybody to disagree with me. And there's something empowering for most of us when we see somebody who says, hey, here's what I sincerely think. I'm, I'm willing to discuss any differences. I'm willing to hear criticism, but here's what I think. And then another person tries to guilt trip them on being their authentic selves. How dare you believe the Bible? How dare you be someone who doesn't believe the Bible? How dare you be who you are? And that person says, look, I'm not going to tap dance for you, okay? If you want to have an intelligent discussion, let's have an intelligent discussion, but I'm not going to tap dance, I'm not going to shuck and jive. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to apologize to you for thinking the way that I think. So if we're going to have a discussion about what I think, we're going to have a discussion about the correctness or the incorrectness thereof. Because if it's correct, it doesn't matter if you hate it. You yes. hate the truth. Mm-hmm. If it's incorrect, then let's talk about that because that's the real problem, not the problem that you, not the fact that you don't like it. And there's something empowering about seeing people who do that because we all need to do that for the best understanding of truth that we have. That's that's the only way to be authentic. That's the only way to get things done in a way that's in harmony with reality. Can you imagine if you believe something was true sincerely and all that was needed for you to completely abandon truth mm. was for somebody to say, I don't like you for believing that. Mm. Oh my gosh, what a flaky world. Right. What a flighty, unstable world. I prefer a world where we look at each other and say, hey, look, I'm not trying to tick you off by by believing this. Mm. And, you know, I kind of hate the fact that it bothers you, but let's talk about it. I'm not going to change my beliefs just because you're uncomfortable. There's nothing that you could believe that isn't going to make someone feel that way. So you need an objective standard. You need a way of analyzing beliefs logically and rationally, not adopting them or discarding them just because there are people out there who says, I don't like you for believing that. You disgust me. Well, sometimes the truth is disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, 
I think it goes back to that being authentic. And maybe that is what you're seeing in these people that you're bringing up is like the authenticity, even with someone like Richard Spencer, which again, um, the nuance with the word offensive, like, yeah, he's, he can say offensive things, but I can, I don't have to be offended by the offensive things that he's trying to say. Right. But even with the things that he says that I don't disagree with, there is something where you're like, well, I mean, he's being authentic. At least he's being authentic. Um, and, and that is where, yeah, I think that's the the difference. It's with Kanye though. It's, I also respect the meaning to be offended. Like he, cause in a way he's still being authentic. I mean, he's still trying to manipulate, but, but that's who Kanye is. I think, I think what I like, I agree with you. So like if Richard Spencer says something that is intended to be offensive or Mm -hmm. if Kanye says something that's intended, not that I don't want to put them in the same camp. They're nowhere near the same thing. But if someone says something that is meant to be offensive, Mm -hmm. I'm giving them more power if I decide to be offended by it. If you react to it. Yeah. And I think TK and Ryan, you both just sort of bridge the gap for me here. What I really like about Kanye West or Vodi Bakum or Nori Muhammad. Uh, Nori Muhammad is like one of the leaders of the nation of Islam. He's based out of Indianapolis and I find him super compelling. I think that the reason I find all three of those men compelling is that they don't care whether or not you are angry or offended or you believe something different from them. They aren't interested in changing their mind to Mm. appease you. They're interested in what the truth is. Now, we can argue as to whether or not they have found the truth, but what I really find compelling is they're not willing to lick your boots in order to make you happy. Here is my fundamental problem with something that's bigger than cancel culture, but often gets labeled cancel culture. Whenever we treat certain topics of conversation as if they're off limits, we actually strengthen those very things that we don't want to talk about. There is nothing more powerful than dragging a topic into the light and subjecting it to rational scrutiny with the kind of composure of someone who says, I do not fear the truth. I am not scared of you or this conversation Just because you have some things to say that offend my sensibilities, I want to talk about the ideas. I want to hear you back them up. I want to push back against you. I want to hear what you have to say. And I want to get to the bottom of it. Because if you're wrong, you're wrong. If you're right, it doesn't matter how uncomfortable it makes me. Because one thing I need in my life is to be transformed by the truths that make me uncomfortable. And I feel like we're we're kind of living at a time now where everybody's apologizing for having conversations or trying to make other people apologize for having conversations. And I've never been that type of person, even about the craziest, most ridiculous things. If you want to know why conspiracy theories continue to thrive, it has less to do with what the conspiracy theorists are saying. And it has more to do with the outright refusal of non-believers to talk about them. They never want to have those debates. And you know what it looks like? It looks like they're running. It looks like they're scared. There's nothing that makes a conspiracy theory look true quite like people's absolute refusal to ever talk about it. But it's like, look, if this is a stupid idea, you should be able to show why it's stupid. Right. I still have faith in that. If things are wrong, we can show why they're wrong. So let's drag it out and let's talk about it. We see that with flat earth all the time, right? Like imagine if all social media 
network started banning anyone who talked about flat earth. Well, they kind of do. No, I don't think so. And, and because it's one of those things that's commonly accepted. It's not, it doesn't seem like a real problem. And so like, no one is going around thinking like, oh yeah, yeah, really, there is, there's a, some effort to suppress the truth about flat. No one's really thinking that. But with other things, like with Kanye, when he's going out here and they start suppressing and deleting interviews and stuff, like if Kanye, instead of saying the crazy shit that he said about the media, started saying, which, you know, I don't agree with, but I would welcome the conversation. But if he went out on, on Nori's podcast and said, look, guys, the earth is flat, it's flat, it's flat, and he kept saying that, they would not have taken that interview down. Mm. They, we, they would, we would have all laughed at Kanye and said, look, that is an idea that is patently absurd. That's what they did to Kyrie Irving, right? Because yes. he's, he's got celebrity status that's really high. I haven't, they haven't you know, deleted any interviews where he's referenced the belief in flat earth, right? right. It's just that a lot of people mocked him. Yes, you know, and yeah. I see that with uh, someone like Alex Jones when he was on Andrew Schultz's podcast. They just let him talk for two hours, and all of a sudden you realize, like, oh, this guy—I don't know how anyone takes him seriously. Right, and you realize he's an entertainer. He's a bit of a comic, and you can actually laugh at him or even with him without taking what he's saying as some sort of gospel truth mm. that is permeating the fundaments of my life. You know, so what happens is a lot of people say, well, if I, if I let these types of interviews stand, like, you know, you get Alex Jones on the show and you talk to him for two hours having an intelligent conversation, it's going to send a message to the future generation or to impressionable young people that, hey, this is a respectable idea. Well, you don't have to say that in the conversation. You can say, I think your ideas are terrible and I disagree. You're actually modeling for people what it's like to analyze an idea and show the holes in it. But what really happens is in an effort to protect the impressionable minds from the idea, when we delete it, you know what that creates? That creates a market for people that's like, yo, I got the video. Mm -hmm. And now people are going to watch it without the light of scrutiny. Mm -hmm. Because the only scrutiny that exists is the scrutiny that says, shut it down, shut it down. But you're not hearing from the most intelligent voices a clear, detailed analysis of what's wrong with it because all the focus is, is on suppressing it. And that actually just reinforces, you know, um, I think bad thinking. Can we go back to the reason yeah. why we suppress it, though? It's ultimately because advertisements suck. And advertisers are suppressing speech because they, right, I understand. Like if I run Procter & Gamble, I don't want the Tide Pods to run on an anti-Semitic video or an ISIS beheading video. Please don't put my uh, product associated with anything that I don't want it to be. I want it to be associated with vanilla, you know, uh, nonsense, right? The really clean, boring things with a lots of eyes, Mr. Beast, right? Like, oh, okay, I can get behind that because it's, you know, he did Squid Games, but the crappy version of it. And so like, uh, but it has millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of eyeballs on it. And therefore I can put my product on that, right? And so really what we're talking about is censorship from advertising. Corporations are the ones that are censoring us. It's not the right to free speech or whatever else. It is the, the idea that, well, I can only be on these platforms if I conform to what the advertisers want. What does yeah. it say about the way they think of us? They, you know what I mean? Like, like whenever... Talking about oh, advertisers? 
Yeah. 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 When, whenever consumers are kind of given the choice to watch something or ignore it, mm-hmm. to buy something or not buy it, 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 it tends to sort itself out. Like the, the mainstream response to certain ideas is pretty predictable. Right. Like it's like most people are saying, oh, that's stupid. I mean, I mean, wh- wh- no matter what side of the debate you stand on, most people like the idea that Alex Jones is crazy and not worth listening to. That's the majority opinion. Right. So if you're concerned about him, like y- you should feel good about that fact, at least. Right. The majority of people think he's crazy, nutty and French. Even if you're someone who who likes his ideas, you got to acknowledge that you're on the French side of this. So when people have the opportunity to kind of choose for themselves, they tend to say, ah, I'm not going to go with that. But advertisers, when they step in, it's almost like they think we're stupid. It's almost like they think we're children. Like we don't have the ability to think for ourselves. We don't have the ability to critically assess ideas. We don't have the ability to decide for ourselves if that's true or not, or ask the right questions or um, engage two sides, you know, two different opinions. And so we live in a world where we don't even get to look at ideas until they've been highly filtered by the people who think it's their job to take care of us. I mean, even in political debates, we don't, we only get to see a highly filtered version of that, you know, basically the people with the most money, the people who pass a certain amount of litmus tests, we hardly ever get to see these people really challenged by the brightest minds because it's so controlled. Who gets to be in the conversation? Yeah. Anyway. Actually, well, bring. Oh, I was going to say advertisers, like they, I think they do look at us like we're stupid and yeah. they do look at us like we're kids. And when they put out their advertisements, like that's the filter that they go through. Mm -hmm. The other thing too is, you know, we always talk about if you try to please the masses, then you end up with something vanilla. Mm -hmm. But that's exactly what advertisers, they want vanilla. Yeah. And that's why commercials are so bad. David Foster Wallace had this whole theory back when commercials were just on TV, basically, you know, pre-internet commercials, that commercials were so bad in order to make what you were watching seem compelling. (laughs) (laughs) Even though, like, you know, the soap opera wasn't very compelling, but when you put it next to this insurance ad, it's like, have you tried to watch... Bex and I went to a movie last week, and the commercials at the beginning, they're they're incoherent. Mm -hmm. They are lazy. They're boring. You're forced to sit through it. But you would never, ever seek these out. The one time of the year where people do is the Super Bowl, mm-hmm. and that's when they actually spend money and creativity. They hire some of the most creative minds mm-hmm. to manipulate you, but at least they've created something that is compelling. But the rest of the year, it's just incoherent nonsense that none of us would ever seek out. Yeah. Speaking of incoherent nonsense, let's move on <laughs> to the advertisement suck segment. <laughs> I'm pivoting a little bit because Professor Sean put in a ad that sucks. And we're not going to look at that because I didn't think it sucked really. It was a, it was to get tested for HIV. And, uh, I get the ads. They're all these, and they're on all the benches throughout LA. You see it. And it says just a prick, which I think is kind of funny, right? It is funny. Yeah. Um, but like anything that encourages people to get STI tested, I actually think is one of the rare examples of a great advertisement. Yeah. I I'm all for the spending of these foundations to educate people that, HIV testing is available yeah. widely, readily. It's nearly free or free for most people. Mm-hmm. So have at it. My sucky advertisement today is from the University of Phoenix, or is it Phoenix University? 
It's the unaccredited university, which is not a pejorative. It's just uh, the pejorative here is actually the ad that I hear. So I'm mm. at a restaurant a few couple months ago with Bex and Ella, and we're there eating. And the radio, they're actually playing the radio in this restaurant. What have, is a radio? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and like, you know, they come on 107. 101.7, The Wiz, and you're like, and in the middle of it, the commercial plays, and, and it's this commercial for Phoenix University, and their tagline at the end of it is, stop thinking, start doing. And while I understand where they're going with mm-hmm. that, a university discouraging thinking, <laughs> it's like, you said the quiet part out loud. Yeah. Now, TK has a lot of experience um, unschooling for adults is what I was explaining what Praxis was to Ella because Ella yeah. goes, my daughter goes to an unschool where yeah. there is no teachers, there's no classrooms, there's no desks, there's no hand raising, there's no homework. And uh, it's it's completely different from the traditional route, which teaches us to what? Not think. Mm-hmm. But a school done well would actually teach one how to think critically. Yeah. You know, this is one of those, do I disagree with what you said or do I disagree with how you said it? And I think that's a very important distinction in any debate. I think a lot of debates people have with one another, a lot of disagreements they uh, express, they're not even clear with themselves on what the issue is. Do I disagree with what you're trying to say or do I just mostly disagree with how you said it? I think this is one of those cases where I... I would mostly protest the how they said it. I think what they're trying to get at is something along the lines of stop overanalyzing and start acting on the ideas. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't need to think it through forever and ever. There just comes a point where it's diminishing returns, like you're ready to take the leap. But this is the pressure that people have in order to get their message across. They first got to get attention. And in order to get attention, you either got to make somebody upset Or you got to make somebody think you're wrong and you got to say something that's basically designed to be like that red flag that you wave in front front of the bull. Come and get me. Come and get me. And this is how you do it. So when you're sitting in the room coming up with your marketing campaign, you say, what can we do? Uh, Let's say stop overanalyzing and stop acting on your ideas. Oh, TK, that's terrible. That's too wordy, man. This ain't a philosophy show. This is a marketing ad. Ain't nobody going to read all that. Okay. um, Stop thinking, start doing. Oh, yeah, that's great because everybody's going to correct you on that. Mm. That's going to make everybody mad because it's so obviously wrong. But yet it's defensible because once we get on all the shows or the podcast to talk about it, since everybody going to be mad at us, we can then and explain and people could go oh yeah and then we win and that's the game man mm. that's the game there's mm. no room for thinking at our university <laughs> that's right now ryan you got that twitter machine ready because <laughs> it is time for tk's tweet of the week you gotta pick a key guys i like i like ryan's little riff at the end Whatever key you're in, that lock is broken. <laughs> All right. Mel- Melabam, I hand the song over to you. Thank you. Thank you. We got something from Peace Garden Mama. This is uh, one of her tweets that TK has ready for us. So what do you got for us, TK? All right. Peace Garden Mama posts. Boundaries sound like, I can help, but I cannot do this for you. I am not responsible for your emotions. I respect your opinion, but I have my own opinion as well. I understand you're upset, 
and I am not okay with being spoken to that way. I am done talking about this. I need you to understand what I'm feeling. I don't need help problem solving right now. Right now, I need some time to myself. I would love to hear more about this later. I understand I am important to you. And while I care about you, I need some space. And the final boundary, no. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> now, so TK, refreshing. we'll put a link to that in the show notes over at theminimalists.com slash podcast. If you want to read that tweet or if you're watching the video version on Patreon, Jordan has it up here on the screen above our left shoulders here. And I love so that. Pretty. I yeah. love this with respect to to boundaries because we often talk about boundaries, but what do those boundaries look like? Mm. Now it's not about being no, 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 no. We have to be careful of that too, mm. right? Because it's easy to become the vice president of no. And it's just yeah. always, no, no, we're shooting down everyone's ideas. In fact, I had this happen to me recently. I was excited about something uh, when I came home. With, and I very rarely, Ryan knows, I've been excited four times in my life. <laughs> 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 and so I come home and I'm excited about something. And uh, I talked to Bex about it and I could see the look of trepidation mm. on her face. Mm -hmm. And eventually we talked it through and she got to a yes Mm. But there was an immediate no up front based mm. on her preconceived notions or her own desires. But also the real problem was my expectation. I walked in there with, I'm excited, so you should be excited too. Mm. And so as soon as I saw the no, she didn't have, even have to say no. I saw yeah. it on her features, right? Yeah. And so using no effectively is really important. It's yeah. like if you're, if you're doing... Uh, Professor Sean does jiu-jitsu, right? And the key to jiu-jitsu very rarely has to do with like using all your muscle, right? You don't, it's not about overpowering your opponent. In fact, it's often about the opposite, waiting till the right moment to use your muscle. But other times you're actually using sort of their force against them in a way. Can you talk about that a bit? I mean, basically just what you said. Um, but if... It's it's often an insult, like um, oh wow, if you if if you're sparring with someone and they say oh wow, you're really strong, they're insulting you because oh. you're you're you you're don't showing know, you're, your strength. You're showing your strength. Yeah. You're not showing your technique. Yeah. Ooh. Yes. Nice. And I think that's nice with the uh, the boundaries. Can I see the the tweet real quick. You're really TK? strong, right? <laughs> yeah. Thanks, man. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> so there are a few of these here that I think these are helpful because it's framing it in the affirmative, yeah, right? And, and people don't know how to frame this. Yes. Like how often do we get questions yeah. where like, oh, I, I got a roommate or I got a family member or whatever. And like, I, you know, um, they ask me to constantly do things and and we fight about it. Right. Yeah. It's like, well, you're framing it wrong. Yeah. As opposed to and why you fight about it, because often it's the no immediately. Right. As opposed to I respect your opinion, but I have my own opinion as well. Mm -hmm. That is a type of boundary. It's not saying your opinion's wrong or I think you're wrong or you're a bad person hey, I understand we're both on a different page. And maybe you're trying to convince me otherwise, but I have my own opinion about mm -hmm. this. I am not responsible for your emotions. And that's not an affirmative, but it is helping them understand like, okay, I understand that you're angry right now, but you're not angry because of me. Maybe you're reacting to something I said or did, but I am not responsible for your emotions. Mm -hmm. And also, I'm not responsible for what? Improving your emotions, changing your emotions. Yeah. I can help, 
but I cannot do this for you. What a beautiful boundary Mm. that is. These apply really well with children, right? Mm -hmm. With Ella and her reading, she'll often ask, well, can't you just read it for me? I can help, but I can't read it for you. Mm. I can help, but I can't do this for you. AKA, I ain't the one. (laughs) (laughs) And then this one is great for de-escalating. I understand you're upset and... I am not okay with being spoken to that way. Mm. Yes. And I love the and as opposed to the but there. Right. Look, I understand you're upset. I'm not okay being spoken to that way. Yeah. It it's not the hey, you're wrong, but I'm not okay with that. Yeah. Why are you treating me that way? Mm-hmm. Right? Why am I being treated like this? Right? I understand you're upset, but it's not okay to to talk to me this way. I love how all these boundaries are like I don't know. It's, it's nonviolent communication. Yes. It's putting the, you know, something positive on the person you're talking to and then the, the negative piece of it or the feedback or whatever you want to call it. It's putting it back on, uh, it's, it's making, it's taking ownership. For That's it. right. And, yeah. uh, yeah. And what I just realized too is maybe it's not positive, but it's neutral, you know, and that's okay too. Yeah. But as soon as you say like, you can't talk that way to me. Well, now, now you're putting that person on 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 the defense. Yeah, and it's not even whether it's positive or negative. It's affirming. Hey, I understand that you're upset. That's affirming. Right. Yeah. What you're going through. Mm-hmm. Now, at some point, you will put up that wall. You can say no, or you can say, "I am done talking about this mm-hmm. because we're not getting anywhere. In fact, we're getting farther away from where we'd like to be. So I'm done talking about this right now." Yeah. What's key here is say no when you need to say no. Understand that the key to saying no effectively is finding the way of saying no that works for you. Because you can say, I'm not okay with being spoken to that way. And you can also say, you better watch who you're talking to, fool. Both of those are boundaries. One of those might be more effective than the other, depending on where you are trying to go. And sometimes when I give tips for people on how to say no or ways they can word it, there are always people that are like, ha, ha, ha. It's not that complicated. I just look people in the eye and I stare them down and I say no. And I dare them to talk back to me. But so many of us don't it's enjoy. so strong, TK. So many of us don't enjoy that, right? <laughs> so many of us struggle with that. And so understand that all of these boundaries, there are ways you can put it across that work for you. It's like my mother always tells me, you know, she'll say like, hey, what's your thought on this? And I'll tell her and she's writing it down. She's like, okay, now you, you need to put it in a way that mama can say it, baby. And then I say, okay, say it like this. Or sometimes my wife will ask me about something and I, and I say, oh, just tell her, say, no, nah, girl, I can't do that. My wife's like, okay, but I don't talk, talk like that. Can you give me another way? And I go, oh, yeah, yeah. Just say that doesn't work for me, right? Oh, yes. So it's exploring the way of saying it that feels like it's genuine when it's coming from you. Don't, don't sound like you're reading a script. While I respect what you are trying to communicate with me, sir, uh, <laughs> It, it, it does not, <laughs> you know, it does not land in the manner in which you intended. Don't do that. You sound like a script. You won't feel authentic and they'll laugh at you. <laughs> Speaking of things that don't work for me, <laughs> we have an obsolete object this week. Obsolete. Mm. Carly sent this in. You can send in your obsolete objects, your ambassador trash it. You can also send in sucky advertisements. Just email us, podcast at theminimalists.com. We'll feature it on a future episode if we like it. This one is the smartphone jail. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Alabama, can you read what Carly wrote in? Yeah, I sure can. She said, I saw this while standing in line at the Goodwill. 
Having a difficult time keeping to your foyer rule? Or maybe you don't have a foyer? Lock it up. So I call this the entryway rule at my house. And I'll explain it to you real quick. As soon as you walk in to my house, I don't have a foyer or a foyer. Uh, we got this uh, idea originally from our friend Cal Newport because he wrote a book called Digital Minimalism. Mm. And uh, after the fact, he said, I wish I would have included this in the book when I talked to him. And it's the four-year rule, or in my house, the entryway rule. As soon as you walk in my house, there's a charging station for our phones. So if you're a guest, or if you're just me, or Bex, or even Ellis, where she keeps her iPad that she learns on or occasionally watches videos on, we keep it right there in the entryway. I call it the employee entrance because it's the side door. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, it's just a little shelf. You've seen it on past uh, Photo Friday home tours over on Patreon. But as soon as you walk in, you can charge your phone there. But that means the device doesn't follow me around the house. And that's the important part, right? Because otherwise, then you need to buy a product like this. I'm not... I don't, this, uh, this seems obsolete to me. Mm-hmm. Although it's funny, you see it at the Goodwill or whatever store it's at. It still has the price tag on it, the box. It, it means someone donated it. They didn't even use it, right? Yeah. But needing to lock up your phone, that's how addicted we are to the glowing screens. Mm. And the entryway rule helped me break that addiction because mm. as soon as I get home, I know there is a place for my phone. I can still use it if I need to. Mm. If I need to go text Ryan or I need to call TK or if someone needs to call me, it will ring like a home phone, essentially. I'm, a, I'm basically turning my smartphone into a home phone while I'm at home. Mm. And now Instagram isn't following me around the house and Twitter isn't following me around. My email isn't following Mm. me around. My text messages aren't following me around. The impulse is not following me around my house. It's the moment that I untether from all of the urgency in everyone else's life because everything seems so urgent when that phone is always in your pocket reminding you notification, read me, more news media, more information clutter. And I can let that go by simply setting it down when I walk into the house and when I leave the house, I pick it back up and my mobile phone becomes mobile again. That's cool, man, because it shows that, you know, you can let something go without throwing it away. That, that setting the boundaries around how you use the thing doesn't require you to destroy the thing. And so for you, you, you haven't said, I'm going to delete the IG app from my phone. I'm, I'm going to get rid of the phone and return to a landline. You said, no, I'm going to keep this tool because I like it the way it is, but I'm just going to put a little structure around how I use it. That That's a way to hold on while letting go of those aspects of the thing you're holding on to, letting go of those aspects that hold you back. Hmm. Now, he did actually delete IG from his phone. Oh, did he? <laughs> <laughs> I'll put it back on when we have things to promote. Yeah, but but, but, but that is a great boundary, though. Yeah, yeah. It's like he didn't delete yeah. his Instagram altogether. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, he. Uh, it's the same thing with the email. It's like yeah. if you have that email up on your phone, yeah. you know you're going to be checking it. Yeah. 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 And, and that now all of a sudden I'm reacting to everyone else's supposed emergency. Let's move on to the Photo Friday home tour. Yeah. We're taking a detour into... Tacoa Coleman's house. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So we have we have two photos here. The first one, which you see on your screen right now, if you're watching the video version of this, we emailed both of them to you last Friday, by the way, if you are a private podcast video subscriber. We're taking a look at TK's home and he sent this to me via text and he said, 
here's where I was eating dinner for a long time <laughs> because they didn't have a kitchen table yet. You were waiting for a while to get mm. your kitchen table, it sounds like, TK. and We've never had a table, by the way, like so... Our last place, we didn't we didn't have a table. We spent the whole time. You know, we had we had that little bar that's that comes, mm. you know, at the apartment, and that's where we that's where we ate. And, and sometimes mm. we would, you know, uh, use those trays. You know, if we had like extra people over. Mm. So this this is what we had. So Ryan, those, I'm pillow, looking, those pillows are beautiful, by the way. Thank you, man. Gorgeous. I, really I was like I was planning on having an intervention about. In fact, the, oh, I love my pillows. The, the, <laughs> I'm massive. No, they're massive. gorgeous. It's funny because I don't make me trash it. <laughs> <laughs> I had that um, that reaction of oh my goodness because uh, I could see why you have those and they're beautiful, but. Um, Josh could never live that way. He might slice yeah. his wrists if uh, Bex. <laughs> Why do you think I'm wearing would a long sleeve any... shirt right now? <laughs> hey, would you have any? I don't want to delete myself. <laughs> oh my goodness! Oh, oh my goodness! <clears throat> would you have any pillows? No, I have one, but uh, I, I, it's in protest. Yeah. Um, Wait a minute. It's under constant protest. So um, okay. Uh, here's what I'll say. Uh, I titled this photo "Throat Pillow Intervention." Now, <laughs> I think they're gorgeous, man. Readers of our second book, "Everything That Remains," which is also featured in our first film, "Minimalism," knows that uh, the the inside joke. Like when I when I got divorced, I felt compelled to go buy a bunch of new things. The, the my favorite line from that book is, "Even while Rome is burning, there seems to be time for shopping at IKEA." And my whole life was in shambles. My mother died. My marriage ends. My career sucks. I'm overweight. Like all these, I'm unhealthy. All of these problems in my life. And what am I doing? I'm going to IKEA looking for ways to satisfy myself. And I'm like, I guess I need this. I need a rug. I need the shower. I need all these things. I said, I guess I need a throat pillow. Mm. And growing up, for whatever reason, I thought they were called throat pillows. <laughs> I, I, I guess I was using them wrong the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> like why does my throat need a pillow oh man <laughs> anyway um we do have a pillow on our couch now and uh ella and bex both really enjoy it occasionally i'll steal it and cuddle up with it myself because it's there but uh it's not something that i would feel compelled to purchase myself however i joke that it being an intervention because yes if this were my house although that room is is aggressively simple you don't seem to have much in there you oh. have a, an entire collection of throw pillows <laughs> and i actually applaud you for that if you get value from them yeah it seems to me that you enjoy those for whatever reason i strongly dislike pillows on couches whatsoever so if you walked into that room and that was where you lived your spidey senses would go off you'd, you'd feel that i would just get rid of the head. pillows and i'd feel mm. much calmer wow okay that's it yeah and what I like about this, you had these two trays there. This is where you were eating. Let's go to the next photo real quick. Here is TK's dining room now. Mm. And this I can get down with. That's a beautiful table and a beautiful room that is simple. It is clutter-free. It feels calm. It feels like it doesn't echo much. You got some carpet in there. There's, there's art in the room as well. It's called a window. And you can see nature outside the window, which is my favorite kind of art. I generally don't hang things on my wall, but we have a lot of windows at my house. And it opens it up to the outside, which is the real art. So my prior place, our prior place, had one openable window. Um. And a beautiful, lovely place that we miss. But the big difference maker with this place over all the others was that it had the most windows. Like there's a window in every room. Mm. It's like, oh, never had that before. And, and you're right, man. That's the best kind of art, especially you get that natural lighting. You know what I mean? Like 
is just so beautiful. It's just so nice. The, the space feels different. I mean, even when it's even when it's evening time. And maybe I'm just like sitting sitting there reading or something and I just open up those shades and like the windows are there. It's just, it just feels good, you know? But yeah, I love this table. First table we've had and uh, it's just perfect. Um, you, you'll see you've got the two chairs there and the bench. I didn't even know that was a thing yeah. to have like that bench. Um, I only noticed it because that was the cheaper option. And I was like, really? That's the cooler looking option to yeah. me. It, it's It's got like a nice aesthetic vibe. It gives it more simplicity. It makes it feel like less cluttery to not have those four chairs you got to move around. Um, and it's just perfect. It feels like um, it's got the aesthetics of like a nice dinner table, but also like the feel of a library table where I can have my notes and my books and just kind of sit there and do work or go through bills, things like that. I love it. Love that table. It's one of my favorite places to work is at the kitchen. I have a desk, yeah. but I'll often write or pay the bills or whatever mm. at the kitchen table. Mm. I've just developed that over the years yeah. where I started and I, I keep gravitating back to it. So bravo to you. What a beautifully simple space. Yeah, man. Looks great. We'll keep sending those photo Friday home tour pictures to you every Friday if you're a subscriber to the video version of the private podcast. You can check that out at patreon.com slash the minimalist. Speaking of Patreon, let's check in with our live stream today. Alabama, any more questions for us? We do have a Jessica question. Uh, she says, what is the balance between watching news, sharing and bringing awareness versus setting the boundary of if it doesn't bring me happiness, it is not for me. I feel morally conflicted. Hmm. So that presupposes that it is morally right it to watch the news. And if that were true, then more news would be even more moral. Right. And so I think what we're saying here is between us, we don't see a moral imperative to watch the news. No, I don't care how you watch the news. I don't care how uh, Danny Unknown watches the news. Like I, this isn't a judgment. Uh -huh. This is just like when we had that conversation, it's more about how do we keep the peace in our lives? And I know that my life is more peaceful with the less news that I watch. And never, ever have I watched the news and been like, thank God I found that out. It's very, it's very rare that the news actually provides you the news. Mm -hmm. It generally provides you some sort of opinion or spin. It's the whole point of the clickbait. Now, they do that so they can sell you more things. I subscribe to one newspaper. It's the Dayton Business Journal. And... The, it's the most boring news that you'll ever get. The headlines are like, a new construction group starts bid for Moraine property. And it's like, okay, like it's actual facts, right? As opposed to any spin whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And I still subscribe to that because I like to know what's going back, uh, going on in our hometown without any sort of bias. And there's no ads that they're trying, they're not trying to sell me stuff. I have to subscribe to it, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm paying for the service. Whenever I can pay for a service that eliminates the ads, an ad blocker, or simply YouTube premium or the tier of Netflix that doesn't include the advertisers, I mean, even Netflix. Yeah, no wonder they didn't buy the documentary that we pitched them called Advertisement Suck. <laughs> it's like, hey, Netflix, um, advertisements still suck. And mm. I can say that because I'm not willing to lick Netflix's boots either. Ooh, no boot licking, baby. No boot licking. So, you know, I, I just, I just want to make clear that it is not our philosophy that you should only expose yourself to resources that make you feel happy. 
We do acknowledge there is such a thing as being informed about important matters that don't necessarily make you feel good, right? So if you take your car to the mechanic and he sees a problem that's really expensive to fix, you're probably not going to be happy when he comes out and says, yeah, something's wrong with your car. But you want that information. So there, there is a context for saying, I need or want that information, even though it doesn't make me feel good to hear it. What I would say, the problem with the news or with most people's relationship to it isn't that they choose to inform themselves about things that don't make them happy. It's that they're letting someone else define for them what it means to be informed. Information is infinite. You can read an encyclopedia and be informed. You can read a gossip magazine and be informed. You can watch the news and be informed. But in what direction are you being informed? What are the priorities you're seeking information for? What are the values that you're using as the standard for the information that, you're, that you prioritize? We have to filter out something. None of us have the ability to focus on everything. So as long as you are the one that's saying, I will inform myself about these things in order to be able to position myself to do these other things, then you get to decide. There's nothing wrong with watching the news if it's empowering you to act in the world in a way that reflects your mission, your purpose, your values. But don't give that power to them. Don't let other people tell you, well, you're not informed unless you know about this controversy over here or about this person who killed that person. No, it starts with you. And then the information is a means to an end. Yeah, what's important to you And if you understand what is important to you and the news helps fulfill that, wonderful. Yeah. But generally, the news does the opposite of fulfilling what's important to you. It distracts you from what is important to you. And if the news media is adding that sort of clutter to your life, then it's getting in the way of what's truly important. That's when I want to declutter all of the excess news in my life. Yeah. All right, y'all, before we get to our added value segment, real quick for right here, right now, here's one thing that's going on in the life of the minimalists in less than two weeks on November 27th, Sunday, November 27th at noon, we have our final Sunday symposium of the year. It's here in Los Angeles. Who knows? This might be our final ever Sunday symposium. We haven't decided whether or not we're going to renew this or how we're going to process it going forward. We've learned a lot from the first three events. This is our fourth one where we meet a small group of people. It's 200 people. Half the tickets are free. By the way, I'm mentioning this right now because you'll want to go today to sundaysymposium.com. Get your ticket before it sells out. Every time we mention it on the podcast, the tickets go fairly quickly. And because this is the last one that we're doing this year, maybe ever, Mm. they'll go really quickly. And if you want to be part of this historic event, well... You have the opportunity, sundaysymposium.com. We meet at noon on Sunday, 200 of us, and we have an experience together. We talk about simplifying our lives. We talk about letting go. We answer your questions. We do a reading. We talk about material possessions or careers or financial clutter or information clutter. Any of the clutter that you have in your life, you can bring to this event Mm. and we'll help you sort through that clutter to figure out what does add value and what doesn't, what's getting in the way. And we'll help you let that go, but we'll let go together. All right, added value, y'all. I got two things for you. The Sedona method. So Hale Dwodskin, as I talked about on the private podcast, he was supposed to be here today, couldn't make it. We'll get him on a future episode. We talked a lot on the private podcast about releasing, about letting go of some of these things that are in the way. 
And I even gave you the four-step method that Hale uses in this book, the Sedona Method, to let go, to release the anxiety, the tension, to hold on to it for a minute, to recognize it. So you can hear that on the private podcast, or you can just check out the book. It's called The Sedona Method. I'm in the middle of it right now. I'm so enjoying this book. It's helping me let go, not of physical things. I I can let go of those things easily, but some emotional clutter that I didn't even realize that I had. He's helping me let go of that and really find that emotional well-being that is there Once you let go of the tension, the stress, the worry, the anxiety, the discontent that we've been clinging to, not even knowing we're clinging to it. And so we did an exercise on the private podcast. You can check that out, uh, but check out the book. It's called The Sedona Method. And Malabama has something for us. If you just want to check the book out from your local library, you use something called the Libby app. Can you talk about that? Oh, my stars. I really enjoy the Libby app. Professor Sean and I were getting giddy over this because it's so easy to access resources like ebooks, audiobooks, magazines from your library that you probably already use. All you have to do is download the app. It is free. It is provided by OverDrive. And what they do is connect you to the digital resources through your library card. You can even add multiple library cards, which is something I didn't know until Professor Sean even brought up. So I have access to stuff in Illinois, in Tennessee, and in Los Angeles. Wow. It's beautiful. And best of all, there's not a single ad on there. Mm. And you don't have to read in the app as well. You can send the ebooks to your Kindle. If you have a Kobo, uh, the service is actually directly integrated with the device. You don't even need the app. Uh Uh-oh. It's on. Wow. And so if you want any of the minimalist books, you can check them out at uh, the Libby app as well. Or I assume the Sedona method you could find over there as well. So uh, check it out. We'll put a link to that as well as the Sedona method in the show notes. So you can check out books for free, ebooks, and it sounds like audiobooks as well, right? Oh, yeah. That's where I get most of my audiobooks. You can get that from your local wow. library without even going to your local library. Game over. Mm-hmm. That's our show for today, Simpletons. On behalf of Ryan Nicodemus, TK Coleman, Malabama, Podcast Sean, Jordan No More, Professor Sean, Social Jess, Danny Unknown, Post Production Peter, Emma the Immigrant, and the rest of our team. I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. If you leave here today with just one message, let it be this love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. We'll see you next time. Peace. Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it